0: Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Recently, a contest was launched for those interested in making math physics explainer videos. It's essentially the physics version of 3Blue1Brown's contest, and Brilliant has come on board to divvy 5,000 USD equally among the top 5. The details are linked below. Professor Ashtakar is the Eberly Professor of Physics and the Director of the Institute for Gravitational Physics and Geometry at Pennsylvania State University and is the man responsible for loop quantum cosmology. Roger Penrose has described Ashtakar's approach to quantum gravity as the most important of all the attempts at quantizing general relativity. I'm proud to say that this is Ashtakar's podcast premiere. In this part one, we cover what was there prior to the Big Bang, the myth of singularities, Buddha's parable of the poison arrow, as well as the inner versus outer world. Some of the physics can be a bit esoteric, especially the technicalities of Loop QG, giving a taste as to what it's like to study the subject if you're interested. My name's Kurt Jai I'm a Torontonian filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics, dedicated to the explication of the variegated terrain of theories of everything, that is primarily from a physics perspective, but as well as investigating what role consciousness has to play in the fundamental laws, provided these laws exist at all and are knowable to us. If you'd like to hear more podcasts like these, then do consider going to patreon.com slash Kurt It's support from the patrons and the sponsors that allow me to do this, to put out podcasts of this quality, of this length consistently, as this is now what I'm able to do full-time. Today's sponsor is Brilliant. Brilliant is a place to learn mathematics, science, and engineering in an interactive form. Soon I would like to speak to Chiara Marletto on information theory, so I decided to take Brilliant's course on random variable distributions and information theory, and after taking that course, I could finally see why entropy is defined the way it is. There are plenty of other different courses. You can even learn group theory, which is what's being referred to when you hear that the standard model, the internal gauge groups of the standard model, are contingent on U1, cross SU2, cross SU3. Visit Brilliant.org/toe. That is toe, that is T-O-E, to get 20% off the annual subscription. And I personally, I recommend that you don't stop before four lessons. I think you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can now comprehend subjects you previously had a difficult time grokking. All right, now part two will be in a few months. So note your questions down in the comments for me to ask the professor. Thank you and enjoy part one with the great Abai Ashtakar making his podcast premiere on the Toe channel. Professor, I'm extremely honored to be here with you. You're one of the preeminent physicists of our era, and I think I speak on behalf of much of the audience when I say that we're lucky to be alive during the same time that you're alive, and it's an honor, man. Thank you so much for joining me on tow. Well,
1: it was my pleasure because, um, I mean, it's one of the very rare uh, places where people are interested in theory of everything, which includes not just the physical world, but also the inner world. And uh, that has been my passion. So it is a very, very good match for me.
0: The inner world, you mentioned, we're going to get to that too. Yeah, no, both,
1: both, the, the inner world, as well as the uh, the outer world. I mean, not just kind of not just the physics sense of theory of everything, but really theory of everything.
0: Yes, everything. And that includes the overlap between those. And we gave or you gave a great analogy prior about the compatibility condition on a manifold on a sphere. We'll get to that. I'll give a bit of an overview for the audience as to what we're going to talk about. Roughly in order, loop quantum gravity, because that's what you're most famous for. And loop quantum cosmology, the Big Bang, black holes, the second law. So there's We deal with entropy at some point and causality, perhaps even the arrow of time, the differences between the inner and the outer world, and what you believe are ingredients to a theory of everything, and perhaps even some of the philosophy of physics. Unfortunately, there were myriad technical issues. Thus, the audio of Ashtakar's isn't as pristine as it could be. Keep listening as it improves with time. How about you give people an introduction as to how you view what the outer world is and what the inner world is, perhaps what led you to that as well? that distinction? And also the utility of the inner world, which is generally discarded?
1: Yeah. So the outer world, we, I just mean the physical universe that we sort of inhabit, we sort of study, we, it can be you know, physics, that's what we're talking about, you know, so it can be planets and stars and gravitational waves and cosmology and black holes. And it can be just a tree outside my window up here. And so that all those, all those things, and you know, they all seem to have some laws and science as been incredibly successful in actually finding many, many of these laws and understanding the why things happen in the external world that we see. Uh, But there also have been kind of old traditions which focused much more on the inner world. And the problem there was not I mean, I'm talking about kind of the best things that I've come across. I'm not talking about everybody. So, sure. um, so the problem there was basically um, not that the outer worlds are, outer world and the phenomena, etc., etc., are not important. But somehow the central theme should be why is there suffering? And what would lead to Lessening or elimination of suffering. There's a very, very beautiful story of attributed uh, to the Buddha. So the statement is that one day a young monk came in, in the hour where people could go and ask questions and sat and asked him. And it's very beautiful. It says, he sat down and said, he says. I was meditating the other day and the following thoughts came to me. I should have looked this up before the conversation because I will probably not reproduce sure. completely, right? But his name was Malankya, Malankya, Putta. Putta is Putra or son son of Malankya. Uh, Malankya Putta says, well, sir, I was thinking about this uh, and the following thoughts occurred to me. Why is the, is the universe finite or did it have a beginning? Was, did it always always existed? I mean, so is it finite in time or is the universe finite in space or is it infinite? <laughs> these are the questions we asked today, right? I mean, yeah, it's amazing, yes. And then he goes on. There are about eight questions. That's why I said I should have looked up the other questions. these were the first two questions. And then he sort of says that well, does Buddha exist after the after death? Or Buddha not exist after death, or Buddha exists, both exist and not exist after death. Mm-hmm. So it goes on in, in first up with the outer world and then, you know, with the more um, spiritual questions and so on. And Buddha doesn't answer, he keeps quiet. Then his Malankya is disappointed. <laughs> so he waits there very. Respectfully, for whatever time was supposed to be appropriate, and then leaves. Comes back a week later. Says, "I'm sorry, but I those questions continue to bother me. I'm really troubled." And he repeats the questions again. This eight. Yes. I think they want eight questions again. Sounds like me. <laughs> so Buddha doesn't answer again. And then, and third time he comes and he says, "The." Every time I come, I ask this questions. He repeats the question. He says, it should be simple for you to say that you know the answers or you don't know the answers. And if you know the answers, what they are. Your silence does not please me. And that was the one, one phrase he says. And basically, something that if he doesn't get his answers, he will leave the Sangha, you know, the community of monks.
2: Yeah.
1: And Buddha replies, says, first of all, you didn't join Sangha conditionally. But of course, if you are to leave, you can leave anytime. Anybody can leave anytime. Nobody's bound here. And secondly, the reason I don't answer those questions is because they have nothing to do with the central problems that the that Sangha is all about. And it has to do with sufferings. Understanding those questions and understanding answers to those questions, or exploring them and understanding them sufficiently, will do nothing to the reduce, reduction of your suffering. And then I think Buddha gives an analogy. He says, "There is, supposing you, the, you, you go, and now uh, I forget the details, but you are wounded by an arrow." And then the doctor comes, and mm-hmm. doctor wants to put something to you, some medicine. So you say, no, don't put me the med, don't put the medicine. First, I have to know where did you get those plants, how long were those plants marinated, why this plant and not some some other plant, has this medicine been used always? If it was not used always, why did it start using now, and what changed? and so on. So, forth. but if you do that, he says, you will die before you're cured. He said the same thing is true with these questions about the external world. Now, what I like about this is not that he belittled the questions about external world, but he just honestly said that this is not what he is, what he's about. I mean, it's like, if you like, it's like saying that, you know, somebody comes to his class and asks questions about you know, neuroscience or biology or something. and you know, I. I You don't know the answer to those questions. You you are in the wrong place. So I think. So there is a there's a there is really a a schism, there is a really division between this external world and the internal world, and it has grown. Uh, I mean, like uh Francois Ravel says, I know it's for several centuries, it has it has grown. And I think it's a pity because on the other hand, we are all human beings and we, we see the external world and we, we have the internal world. We cannot just deny the internal world. Uh, again, in the talk, talk of this François I mean, he said that philosophers of all time, they were interested in two things. One is the natural world, the natural philosophy. And secondly, wisdom. The wisdom was that you live what you believe. And therefore, you are a shining role model of what we believe. And then he goes on to say that today's scientists are not that. They are no different from a lawyer or a banker or anybody else as far as their own wisdom is concerned or their own belief in practicing what they truly believe. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that's a pity that I think it should be... it could be much nicer if in fact one was in more people were interested in both aspects of this world. And so I think this was where was this? This was um in the early 80s, I think. Um I felt that I, I always been interested in the internal world for whatever reason, maybe because I was born in India. It's not that my family was very spiritual or traditional, or something I don't know, but I read some things enough. You know, I also read a lot of them, so, you know scientific things, many more than the internal world things, but still, there, there might have been some atmosphere or whatever it is, I've been interested for a long time. So in about 80s, sometime in the 80s, I sort of felt that, you know, this really is, I mean, the point was that there seems to be such a, such a schism between the two things. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I listen to scientists, for example, one thing that I like about science, scientists very much compared to the people, experts in the internal world, mm-hmm. Is that one doesn't think one has the? I mean, if you're not, yes, okay, of everything in this in the physics world that everything is going to be explained tomorrow, um, then people don't think that there is absolute truth and that is just around the corner, or that some people know it, or some people have already arrived with absolute truth. I mean, with my great, <laughs> I mean, I admiration is the wrong word, but yes. Oh, for Einstein and so on. I have no hesitation in saying that Einstein was just wrong about many things. I mean, you know, he was wrong about the cosmological constant, and he, in fact, you know, he, he was wrong about the Big Bang. First, first of all, when, when he heard about Friedman's solution, he didn't believe mm-hmm. in it. Finally, when he understood mathematics was right, he told um, Lemaître again, Lemaître, that uh, in one of the Solvay conferences, actually, that. Uh, the idea of the Big Bang is completely repulsive to him. It's a So it's completely, you know. And then I, you know, same thing about cosmological constant. There's a whole idea about, you know, so. Um, and then uh, actually, I told you about Lemaitre going and correcting, um, telling the Pope to, you know, behave differently. Right. He also told Einstein explicitly long time ago, right? I mean, that why do you throw away, because why do you say the cosmological constant cannot be there? It's not an aesthetic question. See, the, the aesthetics, again, I mean, you and Einstein, mm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not an aesthetic question. It's, it's an observational question. It's either there or it's not there. And we see today that the yeah. right. <laughs> anyway, so, but nonetheless, so we have no problem in saying that Einstein was wrong or Bohr was wrong and various things. But that is not accepted in the, in the Internal world, I and mean, you couldn't go and in, in a in a conference and say, or you know, group of those wrong. people and say no, that was wrong. So, I think that this idea that there is absolute thing and you arrive there and then that is static, that I find not very pleasant and not not very uh, scientific or not not very useful attitude. Uh, not you know, it's a it's an attitude which is self-limiting. I think. Well, scientists don't have that attitude, so that is good about it. But there is this problem. You know, you go and talk to these people, and they they want to dismiss science at once. And you talk to scientists, and they want to dismiss uh, uh, right. anything the world has been. Oh, he has gone the deep end. You know, that's mm-hmm. the that's But I you mean, know, just close your eyes. And <laughs> there's a reality there, huge reality that you are dealing with all the time. And somehow that it is not interesting is a is a. And so I. I sometime in the 80s, I thought that is really important that, you know, that what is the nature of reality? And each of them somehow think that, well, I can just extending, keep extending and then it will cover everything. And in the internal ah. world, people think they already extended and they, ah. like, you know, science keeps progressing and progressing and progressing and, you know, it's just, it's just reached it. No, it. may we don't know right i mean it might take infinite time to even describe the external world we don't know that is going to happen in a finite amount of time we we'll would make continuous progress and great. Sure. and there's no question it's deeply valuable it's beautiful when you discover something new as I, there's no question about it uh, but then so so therefore i came up with this idea that maybe you know reality is perhaps if you at all want to model it uh, however incomplete that may be maybe the an best model. By a manifold picture, as I was mentioning to you the other day. It can be more complicated than manifold, but the simplest example would be just a, a two-dimensional sphere, the surface of a ball. And we know from the globe, you know, from the, the earth, so to say looking at the maps and such thing on the, on the globe, that if you try to project it down on a plane, then you have to do the projective map. We can take this north pole and then project each point in the globe, draw a straight line, and then we get a Get a faithful picture uh, of everything but the North Pole. On a picture, it's a very distorted picture. It's not it's a second-polar diagram. So it's not a. It doesn't. Some areas look much bigger than they really are, and so on, so, so But you get that picture. But you cannot cover the whole, the whole sphere with a single chart, single coordinate system, single x and y things. And so I felt that maybe that is that is true with reality that there is an the internal world and there is an external world. And the best case may be that, you know, you can try to cover more and more of the internal world and more and more of the external world, and they will give you some, some charts, so to say. And then the deep question is going to be about the overlap functions, because that is where the- The, the chart the, transitions. Yeah, the, 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 the key th- thing about manifold lies, right? I mean, there's this, this compatibility of the two charts, compatibility of two coordinate system, that they, they overlap, you can now not pull, Chart, you can have a South Pole chart, and around the equator, there are compatibility conditions that should be satisfied. In other words, the same phenomena can be looked at in two different ways, and they should be compatible with each other. And I think that is what is likely to happen that as time goes on. And in particular, for example, um, I was very surprised. I just heard about it only maybe less than 10 years ago, maybe six years ago, or something like that. About this, all these advances in neuroscience, where they can, they have been able to take the image of brain very much. But in particular, uh, these advances had to do with some experiments with uh, which people, I think his name, name is Brewer, In he used to be in um, Yale, but now he has his own company somewhere else. Um, he, th- th- there's a paper in Proceedings of National Academy about this, in which they actually took some monks who were. Who are non-monks, I mean, who were trained in meditation, but solid long training in meditation, not not beginning months. And then he uh had them kind of their brain scans while they were actually began meditation, and he purposely tried different kinds of meditation, you know, this compassion meditation, there is a sense bed such Vipassana, sensational meditation, feeling sensations and loving meditation. And they, they tried all those various techniques and, and they found that what happens is in this all, in all these practices is that the a certain circuit in our brain, which is called DMN or default, default mode network, it's a it's a rather big circuit. Uh, that is a circuit that is most active when we are in normal state. And the way that we hold the world normally is through an internal dialogue. We are not necessarily conscious of it, but there's continuous dialogue, continuous, continuous, continuous movement. And it has to do with, basically, it's very centered around the idea of an I, me, me, mind, self, basically. And what happens in these meditative practices is that those circuits quieten down enormously. And and there are other circuits which are more related with functional functional mode circuits. They don't slow down. Now, for most people, even though they're all of them are very practiced, practiced monks, uh, once the meditation they came out of meditation, then the neurons started firing, and those the default mode mm-hmm. network started mm-hmm. again. But there were a few exceptions, and these, by the way, are the ones who are, which are. I first came across this in the book by Robert Wright uh, called "Why Buddhism is True." It's an interesting book. I mean, he was an evolutionary, he was a science writer for evolution psychology was his specialty. So it is tilted quite a bit towards evolution psychology, and I don't, I don't agree with some of the things that that was said there. But it's a very good book. Um, and then he reported this and then I looked up the you know, National Academy of Sciences journal and mm-hmm. did a lot of follow reading up here that there are a few people who were in that state even after they came out of meditation. They're always in that state and it seems to me and from the other things also that we've got some other time but that several reasons why I believe that this is a state of what used to be called enlightenment. Mm. So it's not a state in which you know saying, oh, how you have to go out in the Himalayas and in the top cave or anything like that. It's really a state of and almost all of them are, of course, very deeply practicing meditators mm-hmm. and such things, but it may not be necessary. I mean, from what I hear, what I read about some of the people I respect. Mm-hmm. Is that it it can also happen spontaneously. I mean. With some effort, but don't necessarily have to have 10 years of meditation or something like that in order to do this. So, there are some mental states, so, that, so there is a possibility of actually having these overlap functions. Namely, science would say that oh, is you know, switch mm-hmm. somehow they were able to switch off the circuit, and that gave them. And when that happens, the sense of self disappears, and when sense of self disappears, then there is a very, very different perception. I mean, this is um, so you know the people that that take salusobin, for example. I mean, there are there are there is a very active group in Johns Hopkins who is, who does, who does research on that. Um, and again, very respect, extremely respected people, I and mean, they are very solid uh, researchers and doctors. Um, and they. The, the experiences of those 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 drugs is really exactly that, namely switching off this, this circuit. And um, I think somebody said right, and, and Watts, I think said, with the Salo and so something like that. When you get the message, hang up the telephone, which is <laughs> <Just> to say, <laughs> when you realize that there are such things exist, you know, don't don't keep taking this more and more. I mean, mm. That's enough so to say. Yes. So I think that uh, there is enough of work going on. I mean, I'm not saying that this is therefore going to be solid next five years, ten years, my lifetime or something of that sort. But I think it is possible to reach those states. I mean, I, I really know some people mm-hmm. whose brains can show that and their writings show mm-hmm. whatever they have told me and I've practiced. Um, I, I, I'm very hard-nosed. I, I don't want to take any advice or i'm also not inclined towards things like devotion and bhakti and i'm not a religious person uh, but you know i whatever makes complete sense to me i try to adopt it and this is one of the one of the principles that they said right and that if you want to move towards quote-unquote wisdom you should live by what you what you understand and what you believe it's not easy <laughs> It's not easy at all, but I think it is not impossible.
0: Because we could talk about the inner and the outer world for hours, we decided to save that for part two and to continue on with physics. Ensure that you note your questions for Ashtakar down either in the comments or somewhere else for part two, which will occur later this year. What is loop quantum gravity and how did you arrive at that approach?
1: Right, So loop quantum gravity is um... Uh, is an approach to unifying general relativity with quantum physics. And this is a long standing open problem. At one stage, it was considered to be the biggest challenge in theoretical physics. And in some circles, it is still considered to be the biggest challenge. Although, uh, because of recent observations, both in the cosmic microwave background and gravitational waves, other frontiers have also opened up, which are considered to be equally interesting. So, I started with, gen- with the, started out in general relativity, and from the point of view of general relativity, then the question is really how do we unify principles of general relativity with those of quantum physics? And there is a real problem right in the beginning because there is a really a tension. I mean, general relativity at the conceptual level is a classical theory. So in that, you've got complete productivity. It's a very geometrical theory. It's sharp and precise. Quantum mechanics on the other hand is by inherently a probabilistic theory. We don't have certainty, but we only have probability amplitudes for various things to happen. And The techniques that one uses are also very, very different techniques. In conduct theory, in conduct theory things like algebraic methods, you know, Hilbert spaces, linear operators, and uncertainty principles, they play a major role. But this sort of interesting thing is that each theory to begin with has a claim on all of physics. In other words, general relativity would say not only is it a theory of gravity, but it's also a theory of space-time structure, and of course, all interactions take place in, in space-time, and therefore, general relativity sort of tells you how to formulate the theories of other interactions. That you know there is a so sort of metric tensor field behind it, which is also serves as a gravitational potential, but determines space-time geometry, determines causality. So it tells you that equations should be differential equations; they should be hyperbolic. Um, and so that you have got productivity and things propagate within the light cone of any point, causality and so on and so forth. And everything is described by smooth tensor fields. For example, electromagnetic fields, gravitational fields, any other field. Whereas quantum, quantum physics to begin with is very different. In quantum physics, it also makes a claim on everything that all systems are quantum mechanical and they should be described therefore in probabilistic terms you should have quantum states or wave functions, which only tell you about potentialities. And only when measurements are done, then these potentialities are turned into actualities. And, but on the other hand, it says that the, all of physics should be described in these particular terms. So on the one hand, we got the geometry, tensor fields, smooth metric, um, light cone propagation, etc., And on the other hand, we got this quantum physics. And so there's a tension. And so my interest was when I started out, this was considered to be the biggest open issue in theoretical physics. And my interest then was how do we address this problem? How do you unify the principles of both those things? I came from general relativity side. So for me, it was really important that there be no what people call background structures. So let me explain what this means. So in quantum mechanics and even quantum field theory, like for example, when we do quantum dynamics and so on, we actually have uh, background structures, which are, um, uh, which is really the space-time metric. Space-time metric is given. It's a stage on which various things happen. It's, it's indifferent to the happenings. It is fixed, nothing, nothing changes. Um, whereas in general relativity, there are no actors. There is a, in the drama of evolution, if you like, space and time is not a spectator, it's also an actor, it's also a physical entity. You can act upon it and it acts back. You know, Einstein's equations basically tell space time how to bend, and once the bent you have got bent space time, that space time tells matter how to move. And so, there is a t- tension here because, on the one hand, in general relativity. There are no background structures. There is nothing which is sitting there. Which is there is no stage. There is no arena. Everything is really acting with each other. Uh, they're only uh, there are no spectators, as I like to say, in this cosmic drama. Um, uh, so, but quantum field theory, for its very formulation, really assumes that there is space time. For example, the Schrodinger equation in which time evolution. But even quantum field theory, uh, you know, you talk about. Causal propagation. You say that if there are two fields of two so-called space-like separated points, so that there's no causal uh, signal passes from one to another, then those fields commute. So these are fundamental commutation relations in the theory, and we don't have such a thing because we got a dynamical metric. You know, so so there's not no fixed structure like that, and therefore uh, there is a there is a there is a tension. And coming from general relativity side, I felt that it was more important that this background independence, the fact that there are no spectators in this cosmic evolution is something that should be put to forefront. And when I started out, all uh, approaches coming from particle physics or quantum field theory side to quantum gravity were really based on this idea that there is a fixed Minkowski metric. And then when you take the gravitational field itself, for example, uh, so that is represented, for example, by curved metric G, so, what you do is you take a introduce by hand a flat minkowski metric or called minkowski metric, and you take the difference G minus the flat metric, let's call it G naught. And then that is considered to be the gravitational field. And that was denoted by H and were just the perturbation theory in powers of H. So the approaches were completely perturbative. And what I wanted to do was very much an approach which is background independent and which was non perturbative which was, so these were the main ingredients that I was focusing on. So
0: H, just to be clear, H is how much the metric differs from the flat case?
1: Right, so H is how much the metric differs from the flat case, but the flat case metric is something that you put by hand. So there is, a, there is a gauge freedom there as one says, it is not something that is physically determined. And the idea is that only when you sum over all the terms, then you'll find that there is no dependence on this flat metric. But there are questions about whether you can actually sum, and that sum converges in a mathematical sense and so on and so forth. There are good partial answers to that in classical theory, but you know, in, 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 in quantum physics, nothing converges, there are infinities, and so the problem is really open. Even in classical theory, really it's difficult to get. If you start out with Minkowski space, which is a flat space, you know, it's like um, if you look at a two-dimensional plane or three-dimensional Euclidean space that you're familiar with, we're adding one dimension, which is time dimension, and it's all completely flat. So the metric there is basically minus the time difference squared plus the space difference squared. That is a metric that that is. And so, um, so this is just given to you once and for all. And then the statement is the H field, for example, is supposed to propagate. On the light cones of this g naught metric that you are given to you given once and for all, but on the other hand, g not metric is just a you know some so something put behind, it. and so therefore to give fundamental uh, meaning to these uh, light cones doesn't is not appropriate. And I think by now people, particle physics even community, sort of appreciates that that, that, that was not completely appropriate. And then when you take with this flat space time metric, you know if, if you want to talk about black holes and so on, locally you can try to sum over the perturbation theory and get a locally of that black hole metric. But globally, this, uh, black holes are very global concepts. Uh, this is not possible. So this was basically the idea. And then the question is how to go about doing this. And so there had, there had been, you know, since the 1950s, uh, attempts at formulating general relativity in such such in a suitable way, so that you can go over to quantum mechanics, quantum physics, quantum gravity, in a non-perturbative way without splitting this. So there were side by side attempts. The particle physics attempt were sort of very much started with Feynman, but then you know taken over by many other people, particularly Bryce David and so on. And then on the on the non-perturbative side, we had Dirac, and then Peter Bergman and his collaborator his old school and so on. They had developed a certain approach, which is called Hamiltonian methods or canonical gravity, as they call it canonical. You can formulate any field theory in that particular language. And that, the advantage there was that one did not need to introduce a fictitious flat background metric. But then the mathematics of that theory, and which was then developed also by John Wheeler and his, and his collaborators. But the mathematics of that theory had remained completely formal. Um, and in, in other words, there are infinities because it's, the system has infinite number of degrees of freedom. It's a field theory. In every field theory, you want electromagnetic field, light, that has infinite local degrees of freedom. And then in, in, in many theories, we know perturbatively how to handle it through renormalization. But general relativity turned out to be not renormalizable, but not perturbatively finite. And so the question was, well, how do you then, you know, what, what do you do, what do you proceed, how, how do you, and so this was, this was not a problem for Dirac, Bergman, Wheeler, etc. And therefore, they actually tried to go in that direction to address more basic questions, particularly Wheeler, about, you know, what happens at the Big Bang and perhaps we can answer such questions where, non perturbative methods are essential because near the Big Bang, the curvature is very, very large. So, try to do an expansion in small curvature quantities is kind of a very bad method, if you like, mm. an ill-suited method. So, this was there, but except that everything was very formal. People were writing down these equations which were formally written down. The famous Vira equation is a formal equation which was written down in the 70s or the 60s actually. And, but even today, it is a formal equation. In other words, we do not have precise mathematical meaning uh, to that equation. And so I wanted to go beyond that. And then I had three ingredients that came all together. The first was um, that there was a formulation of other inter- interactions of physics, you know, the weak and the electromagnetic interactions. And in those interactions, the interactions of popularly people who say forces are propagated by what people call vector potentials. Or in geometry, you might call them connections. It's a vector potential which couples locally to currents, for example, in electromagnetic theory. If you want a local coupling, one, one introduces vector potential. Whereas in general relativity, we only had we, we have a metric. I mean, there's a connection which it defines, but that is not at forefront. We, we have the metric. And the metric defines the light course, it defines what you mean, Give you use meaning to hyperbolicity, differential equations, and so on and so forth. And so famously, for example, Weinberg had pointed out in his classic book on general relativity, that this, this insistence on metric has driven a wedge between particle physics and gravity. And then I thought that maybe we can actually remove this wedge. The second ingredient that came at that time was really coming from um, uh, 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 various ideas that people like Roger Penrose and Ted Newman and so on had introduced coming from Twister theory. And in Twister theory and so on, there is a certain sector of the theory which is exactly integrable. And that I mean, in general relativity, the basic idea is a, is a metric, but the invariantly defined things that defines a strong gravitational field or big gravitational field is the so-called curvature, which is determined by the metric. If, and this curvature, if you like, in, in Maxwell theory, is like the Maxwell tensor F nu, whose components are electric and magnetic fields. So we got similar tensor in uh, general relativity is called the curvature tensor. And that curvature tensor or sometimes called the Riemann tensor is obtained by commuting two derivative operators that are defined by the metric. And so there was this idea that maybe what we should do is to take the connection as a fundamental quantity. And this idea somehow, somehow was suggested to me, I was a postdoc with Roger Penrose. And just during that year, that I, I was there for two years and just during that period, Roger invented what is called as non-linear graviton. Which is called the what, sorry? It's called non-linear graviton. A non-linear graviton, okay. Non-linear graviton. It's a twisted construction. It's a rich construction. It, has, it brings together theory of differential equations and algebraic geometry. The two things that were completely separate all along are brought together. And what Roger showed was that, if you look at a certain simplified version of Einstein's equations, namely the following. What you do is, you've got this curvature tensor, but you can break up the curvature tensor into two parts. And they're called self-dual part and anti-self-dual part. And each of them, if you like, in Maxwell theory also, we can take the Maxwell tensor and divide into two parts called self-dual and anti-self-dual. And each of them defines a helicity of the photon. So these are eigenstates of the helicity operator. A photon is a spin one particle, and it has rest mass zero. And therefore, its angular, its angular momentum, its spin vector is pointed along its four momentum. And then the, it's either along the four momentum or anti-aligned to the four momentum. So therefore, you've got these two helicities. And in that case, the the total spin is 1. So it's either plus 1 or minus 1. So self-dual solutions would have helicity plus 1. And anti-self-dual solutions would have helicity minus 1. So similarly, we we can do this uh, uh, decomposition in the case of gravitational field. And you can have self-dual and anti-self-dual solutions of Einstein's equations. Uh, These, however, are complex solutions of Einstein's equations. And now in quantum mechanics, it doesn't matter because the wave functions are complex. But in classical physics, we want real things. Now for the Maxwell case, it does not matter also because you can take two real two complex things that are complex conjugates of each other. So you can just add them and you'll get the real Maxwell field. And that is a real Maxwell field. But general relativity is a non-linear theory. So you cannot just add the self-dual curvature and anti self dual curvature to get some metric. Whose curvature will be the sum of the two, uh, the real part. So you cannot get the real metric by adding because the theory is nonlinear. You cannot just superpose the self-dual solution and anti-self-dual solution to get a real solution. But nonetheless, the fact that self-duals, this, the mathematical structure of self-dual solutions, is extremely simple. This is what Roger pointed out that you can obtain, quote unquote, the most general solution of Einstein's equation, which is self-dual. This is, you know. It was a radical breakthrough in the way that because equations are so complicated, uh, and but we can obtain the general solution of Einstein's equation using this method. Ted Newman in Pittsburgh had another parallel construction, and it turned out that the two are quite compatible with each other. They are exactly one can go back and forth between the two each other. So I knew that there is this exactly integrable sector of general relativity, but again. I felt that well, that is still talking about complex general relativity, and how do we construct a theory whose limit then would give you classical, usual real general relativity with you know cosmology, black holes, and so on and so forth. And so that was my interest. My interest was what, well, on the one hand, this derivative operators, the connections, they look like good objects to do things, but Penrose and Newman and other and, and uh, Plebansky, there were three, three, three people, three slightly different approaches, but they turned out to be more or less equivalent. They suggested that, well, we should be looking at self dual things. So, therefore, what I did was to say that maybe what we should do is take a real general relativity but formulate it in terms of this self dual variables, as they, as they are called. In other words, you've got a derivative operator which acts on spinners. So spinners are um, fundamental objects that describe, for example, the electron, the neutrinos, the quarks in the standard model. The fundamental fermions are all fermi- uh, fundamental uh, particles, massive particles that are all fermions of here. And this, in, in the presence of a gravitational field, the equations they satisfy involves a certain derivative operator because they're differential equations. But these fundamental particles at the, the, um, uh, the, the basic level, really are left handed fermions, right handed fermions. So, therefore, there, there's only there is a helicity associated with them. And so, if you take the fundamental particles of the standard model in a gravitational field, then they are propagated by so called self dual part or anti self dual part of, of, the, of the curvature.
0: Can you give some clarification as to what it means to be self dual and then what it means to be anti self dual?
1: So very good. So if I look at, let's begin with, with the electromagnetic field. So we've got electric and magnetic fields. And one of the beautiful things about spatial relativity is that they can actually be combined in a covariant manner so that you've got the Maxwell field tensor. So it's a tensor whose, if you like, space-time component is the electric field, and space-space component is a magnetic field. So Electric and magnetic fields are combined together already in special relativity you shouldn't think of them as separately if you have got an observer that observer with his four velocity can decompose this tensor into electric and magnetic field another observer would decompose it in different ways so what you have is really this this this, uh, this field if you like and so uh, what we have is a tensor field which is called f it has two space-time indices so let's call it f mu nu And if you have got a tensor, then one can take it's mathematically, you can take what is called Hodge dual. So you got a two-dimensional anti-symmetric tensor and you can contract it with an epsilon mu nu alpha beta. So these are totally anti-symmetric tensor. And what you object or what you obtain is again, object with two, what you obtain is the object with two anti-symmetric tensors anti indices. So you get an object the same. So it's a similar structure. And so
2: mm-hmm.
1: if you take this epsilon and operate it on a on a Maxwell field, you get another Maxwell field if you like, and that is called the dual of the first one. It's dual because you operate it by epsilon. So what does it mean in terms of electric and magnetic fields? Well, basically E goes to B and B goes to minus E. So you you just you just do, do this rotation, and that is what's dual. Now self dual is the one. In which the field is its own dual, but if you look at this duality operation in the uh, in the space-time signature in, in the, that in the real world, which is time is always say minus and space is plus or vice versa. We, we usually use time as minus, so the 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 distances are always minus, the time interval squared plus the space interval squared. So in that signature this operator, duality operator, is actually, if you take a square, you get minus one. So it means that if you have a self-dual object, something which is equal to itself, if I again operate it by this- op- Equal to the Hodge of itself. Hodge dual, right, exactly. So Then you'll get minus one. So therefore, the self-dual objects, you know, if you do it twice, you get minus one. So therefore, the eigenvalues are plus or minus i. And so if it is plus i, it is called self dual. And if it's minus I, it is called anti-self-dual. So in terms of electric and magnetic field and given observer, you can say that E plus IB, that complex field would be self dual and E minus IB would be anti-self-dual. Now coming to gravity, gravity is very similar. The curvature tensor is like the Maxwell tensor. Is the metric determines the curvature. I'm so sorry, one
0: more time. I am so sorry, professor. I I just want to always, Yes, it's okay. Yep. Every time your
1: question. Great. Great.
0: Okay. Only because I want to make this physically clear. So just one note, Hodge, I may keep this or may, or may not, but a Hodge dual. So if people know what a form is, let's say you have a, a manifold that's four dimensions and you have a form that's two dimensions, then you can take, there, there's a way of taking a two form and then Getting identifying it with another two form.
1: Well, the formula is just, uh, there's a the following that you need this. A, a tensor field because we are talking I, I tell me how much, how technical I can be. So yeah, like yeah, I'm yeah. You, can, you
0: forms, can get technical.
1: Then I need I, I need a, a, a four-form, or actually I need a, a tensor field which is two down two covariant indices and two contravariant indices. And then this contravariant indices can contract with the with the form that you give me, and therefore again I obtain a covariant two form. So I need an object like that. So so, what you need is technically called a conformal metric, a metric up to a multiplicative factor. Then you can actually raise the indices of the four form that you have got in the manifold, if the manifold is orientable, say, and then you can raise the indices, and then you will get um, an object which has two downstairs indices, if you like, or covariant indices, and two upstairs or contravariant indices. And then when you, when you, I got, uh, maybe I should, I don't know, so yeah, it doesn't.
2: Come sure, sure, the, sure, the,
1: sure. Um, and then the statement is that I can contract the upstairs indices with the downstairs indices of for the form and get again a, a form, which has downstairs indices up here. But in the Lorenzian signature, which is minus plus, 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 which is Minkowski signature, the square of the Hodge dual is minus one. In the Riemannian signature, it is plus one.
0: That's an artifact of the raising. So as soon as you try to raise it, you just get a minus. Okay. And if you had a three form, you could identify that with a one form. You just think of whatever is the total dimension of the manifold, your N form becomes the dimension of the manifold minus N. That's to say your Hodge dual of your N form. Okay. Okay. So that's some way of identifying different forms. Now people are like, well, what the heck is a form? Well, there are different ways of thinking about a form. A form can also be identified with with a particle as well. But the point of this is, What I want to know is, what does it mean physically when you say that a theory is dual or self-dual? So, for example, we could identify up and down with being a left-handed or a right-handed particle. Like, okay, so that's there's some correspondence between the math and then the physics. So what's the correspondence here between the math of being self-dual and then the physics? Like, what's concretely happening when one says this theory is self-dual or not? Like, does that correspond to a particle? Does that correspond to a type of theory?
1: Yeah. So, in quantum mechanics, that does corresponds to a particle with a given helicity. It's a, it's a photon. It, because it is a zero response particle, the photon actually has a spin which is aligned to its four momentum, not, not the energy momentum, it's like four momentum. And then the, it's either pointing along the four momentum or anti. And if it is pointing towards the four momentum, then it is, it is a helicity plus one, and the other one is helicity minus one. Now, when it comes to mathematical representation of these states of the photon, then the ones which are, which are pointing in one direction, one helicity, they correspond to Maxwell fields, which are self-dual. And they're complex because wave functions are complex. There's no problem. And if it is other helicity, then, called, uh, then that corresponds to the anti-self-dual. So th- and in, in Maxwell theory is nice because you can just add the two and get a real solution. That's very good. And the idea that Roger had was that, ah, and you can do the same thing with linearized gravity. In other words, this perturbative gravity that I told you about, um, which is in which you got flat space and then you got uh, a weak gravitational field, and you can take the curvature tensor. So the curvature tensor in gravity has four indices, and it is antisymmetric in the first two and antisymmetric in the last two. It's not like the like the, the epsilon form because it is not totally antisymmetric. It is just antisymmetric in the first two and antisymmetric mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the last two. And then some other algebraic conditions appear. And that's called the Riemann tensor. And what you can do again is take this epsilon, the, the take the hash dual on either of the two, it doesn't matter. You can take the Hush dual either of the last the last two or the first two, it doesn't matter. And then again, you will get a tensor which will have four indices, which will be anti symmetric in these two and anti symmetric in the other two. And then those indices are going to be, um, uh, and, and uh, again, the, the, the square of the Hodge duality operator is minus 1. And therefore, uh, you get uh, uh, the eigenfunctions are going to be um, uh, uh, complex. And if you look at linearized gravity, and then you can talk about gravitons, the usual way that people talk about gravitons are all perturbative terms. So that really refers to linear gravity theory. And in linearized gravity, then, the statement is that you can do exactly what we said in the Maxwell theory. Again, the only difference is that now uh, the spin is two rather than one for the graviton in linearized gravity, and then again it is zero rest mass particle, so the spin is either aligned or anti-aligned. And if it is aligned, then it, it is um, it's, uh, it's self-dual. And if it is anti-aligned, it is uh, it is anti-self-dual. Can we talk
0: about the helicity when the particle is not massless?
1: The helicity is usually talked is considered is associated with massless particle. Okay, uh, it's, it's really replaces the notion of spin because the direction is already known, whereas normally you know you can have a, if you have a massive um, vector boson then it would have um, spin. I mean it's not um, so it's not pointing along the so what you know is that the spin is pointing always along is it, perpendicular to the four velocity. And so, so but, but the, if the forward velocity is null, then it's perpendicular itself. So it can spin can point along itself and that's it. So
0: there's one other way of understanding that with a mass, massive particle, if it's moving in a certain direction and it's spinning, you can boost yourself. You can move so that the particles moving over here, but the, but it would still be spinning here. So now it's moving, it's spinning in the opposite direction that it was, whereas
1: before it was aligned. So then the helicity is not defined. Spin will transform like a super vector. And that's true. So it will. So if the four momentum will transform under Lorentz transformations, what you are talking about, and similarly the spin vector will transform. But spin vector will transform like so-called pseudo vector, whereas the uh, the, the um, in other words, if you change x, y, z, t, then the four momentum will go to minus its, comp- its components will be reversed, whereas for the spin vector, the components will remain the same. It is, it is like in ordinary quantum mechanics, not in Okay. So I so had yeah, this long, long uh, explanation about um, quantum gravity. So I just want to say where we were. So basically you asked me about uh, how did I start with this quantum gravity, to quantum gravity and so on. And so first thing was background independence and non perturbative methods. The second thing was then, well, but how do you go about doing it? Because everything people had done, Dirac and Arnold Wieders and Misner uh, and Wheeler and Debit and so on, was very formal. And so, how do you remove that formal things? The second point was, well, we got this. Um, uh, all of the interactions are really governed by this vector potentials or the derivative operator connection, as one calls it in different geometry. Whereas in gravity, in gravity, it is actually the um, uh, is, is the metric that is that that is that is what is used And so, one wanted to have more uniform way of dealing with all interactions. And then the third thing that came was this idea that maybe what we should do is not use, so to say, the brute force derivative operator that the metric gives you, but only part of that derivative operator, which knows how to operate on left-handed spinners, which are the fundamental particles in our standard model, fundamental fermions. So these are the ones which are helicity. So, so, so we just look at those ones. And then the statement was, that means that, well, we should not get rid of them. Metric is not a fundamental object. But even the derivative operator defines all of it is not fundamental operator or uh, object. Only fraction of it, which is extracted out, which is self-dual or anti dual. It doesn't matter is your conventions. But supposing self-dual, you extract it out. Then that is going to be how what we should be able to do. Uh, that should be the fundamental object. And then we should formulate the theory, thinking that that is a fundamental object and then go ahead. And then the nice thing was that if you did this, then one could write down a phase space of the theory, which is exactly like in yang Mills theory, which which govern other interactions, the weak, the the electroweak and the strong interactions. So the weak electric and and strong interactions, they're all governed by so-called yang Mills theory in which there is a uh, connection. Here also, there is a connection, it just happens to be said it's a gravitational connection, which knows how fundamental particles move in presence of uh, gravitational field. The electromagnetic connection tells you how electron charged particles move in, in the presence of um, um, elect- electromagnetic field, external electromagnetic field. The, young, the strong interaction vector potential A, which is, a, that tells you how quarks move in presence of a uh, in presence of a uh, uh, gluon field. You know, that, this this connection is a gluon in that case. And now the statement was that you now take this fundamental constituents of matter, which are fermions, which are which have precise helicity. Uh, this is before the symmetry breaking, so they are precise helicity, so they are, they are massless at that level. And then the statement is that. Uh, you see how they move the gravitational field and what they're sensitive to is really this dual connection. So maybe we should choose that as a fundamental object. And to my surprise, it was a big surprise that the whole theory, real general relativity could be formulated using this half the information somehow. And so so that was a big surprise. So what happened is, two things happened. First of all, the theory could be real general activity could be formulated. Whereas in Twisters, even today, what we have is this self-dual sector and anti-self-dual sector. We don't know how to combine them. Whereas in this formulation, we are really talking about real general activity. And secondly, kinematical level, the, the, uh, by, by kinematical level, I mean, without in, before putting the information over the interactions and so on, So I mean, detailed equations, uh, what are the variables? Uh, in terms of which you formulate your theory. In fact, in Einstein's autobiographical uh, notes, he has this question that in formulation of a physical theory, the first question is, what tools are you going to use? What are the basic mathematical variables which, which are going to capture your physical ideas? And only then, what equations do they satisfy? Sure. And here the statement is that these variables are the same for all interactions. That is very, to me, it is very satisfying. On the other hand, the equations they satisfy are quite different. So, where does the difference come in? And now, the beautiful thing here is that the difference comes in precisely because you've got um, um, the, in general relativity, there are no background fields. So, when I write down the Lagrangian or the Hamiltonian in the uh, Young Mills theory or something, I'm allowed to use not only the, the Young Mills uh, fields or in the case of Maxwell field, I'm allowed to use not only the tensor menu or electric and magnetic fields, but also the metric, I'm just sitting there, spectator. I mean, it just is not doing anything, but I mean, it's not dynamically changing, it's sitting there. So, I can use that to construct this Lagrangian density, but here I don't have anything, I don't have metric. So, I had to write down equations using just this vector potentials, right, just, and, and, and then that canonical conjugate variables, but I don't have a background metric, you know. Now, the funny thing is that, if you really give yourself uh, these, these variables, these connections and their conjugate momentum, which are, which are like the electric fields, you know, uh, the analog in Maxwell theory would be the electric fields, then it us, turns out that there are very few equations you can write down. And it really, literally is true that if you took a very bright undergraduate or first-year graduate student and if we would put them in the room, And you tell them, write down the simplest equations you can write down. No micrometric, no background fields. All you have is this connection and its conjugate momentum. And the equations they will come down are precisely turned out to be Einstein's equations. Now, this is not how I arrived at it. I did it laboriously, which is I started with the usual formulation of Einstein's equations. I made a canonical transformation. I turned the theory on its head, as some friends of mine told me. and then the statement is that it's looking at it upside down. And so, metric is no longer fundamentally variable. And then, I, in this canonical transformation, you suddenly had these variables which turned out to be a connection and their conjugate momentum. And then, I looked at, I mean, because I just did a canonical transformation, I could write down the equations which are equivalent to Einstein's equation. Only later I realized that <laughs> there aren't other equations you can write down. If you, if you have background independence and if you want to have these connections, this is the only thing you can write down. And so that was a formulation of general relativity that I started with, which gave rise to this non perturbative theory, uh, quantum theory then. So we had the advantage of actually using methods which are coming from very successful Yang-Mills theory, so-called Wilson loops or Wilson lines. And those methods were available already, but now we could take it into gravity and we could interpret geometry space-time geometry in terms of those quantities which are used first only in the context of Young Mill's theory. Now much later, I think a little more than 10 years after I I, I did this work, this work was done in 86, 86. So about 10 years later, I realized, I found out that in fact, both Einstein and Schrödinger had tried to give Um, um, A formulation of this general relativity in which connection would be a fundamental variable. Exactly the the same basic idea. And it is a very fascinating chapter in history. So I just want to tell it to you for for the audience, particularly. Einstein was in in the Institute of Advanced Study in in Princeton, and um, Schrodinger was in the Institute of Advanced Study in Dublin. And they, kind of independently thought of this idea, but then they started corresponding. And then these letters are preserved. And I I think that they're available in the archives, not not the usual archive, I mean, in the Sgt. Institute archive. Um, And these are uh, there's a correspondence going back and forth and this is across the ocean. And yet, you know, basically the letters are really one week apart. So basically, as soon as they got the letter, they you know, read it, understood it. I wrote these very detailed replies to each other. It's a very friendly and jovial thing, you know, in which Einstein sort of teased Schrodinger by saying, oh, that idea of yours was cleverer than what a devil's grandmother could think of. <laughs> and, and then you know, Schrodinger replies saying that, well, these are, this is a bigger honor to me than, you know, all the medals that the kings and various people have given me and so on. So. Yeah. So this was all happening and they were working on this theory, which was basically to formulate general relativity in terms of this connection. But they are using the connection, which is more like the metric connection, not the subdual connection, but the, 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 the derivative operator that comes from the metric up here. And then something happened, which is really weird. And the weird was that somehow Schrodinger thought that he had made a breakthrough and he. That breakthrough for those of you audience who might know about it was basically to drop the condition that this connection, which is sometimes called Christoffel symbols. Uh, this is crystal symbols normally in general relativity are symmetric or they call torsion free. So he allowed them to be anti-symmetric. And he thought that this was really a revolution and big idea, big. Idea. And then he gave a press conference saying that, well, this is a completely new theory, it's much bigger and much more beautiful. And, you know, in if, in, uh, in general relativity, you ask them to be symmetric, and so he even gave an analogy of you say that well, here is a horse, and I want to train this horse, but poor horse, he cannot do everything. So what I'm going to do is to train him to jump over a fence, right? But I'm going to tie the the hind legs together mm-hmm. and let let it first learn how to do it with his front legs, and the poor horse won't be able to do it. What you have to do is to you know let it use all the four legs. So, using that, asking that the connect that this Levi symbol be or connection be symmetric is like tying the hind legs of the horse, and I have freed it now. And privately, he even discussed that he might probably get a second Nobel Prize and so on and so forth. And then he gave a seminar. And at that time, you may or may not know the history, but the prime minister, uh, the Tisha in, in Ireland, was a physicist. And so the Tisha came to the seminar. And because Tisha came to the seminar, the press came to the seminar. And therefore, there were headlines the Irish news, newspaper. And this all, by the way, recorded in, uh, in various places. Um, it, there's um, uh, headlines in Irish newspapers saying that has made this great breakthrough and uh, General Attitude is on this special case, and so on and so forth. And then New York Times managed to get a Xerox copy of the Irish Times before it actually uh, you know, appear, and send it to Schrodinger, uh, to, to Oppenheimer and Einstein for comments. I don't know any comment of Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer might have just dismissed it completely. But Einstein prepared a very careful reply. And the reply said that, I mean, he was very taken aback because, you know, they were corresponding on this idea and suddenly Schrodinger thinks that this is, this is such a great idea. And he didn't think it was such a great idea. He didn't think. And so, Einstein gave this press release, which said that, well, it is unwise for scientists to describe what is going on in in technical work in simplistic terms, because that gives the lay public the impression that science advances through revolutions every day as if it was a banana republic. And this was totally developed, and this appeared, of course, in the New York Times. And then this, uh, this was so shocking to Schrodinger when he heard about it. Unfortunately, Schrodinger did the second mistake of writing to Einstein saying that, you know, after the war, the living conditions of physicists are so bad here. So he thought that news like that will, you know, bring more money to physics and so on. And Einstein never corresponded with Schrodinger after that. So He
0: was offended? Schrodinger went off and said that he found a breakthrough without conferring
1: with Einstein first. Uh, so, so that's it. So I mean, of course, nobody took it seriously afterwards, and it, the idea just died. I did not know anything about it. I came to know about it half because of Schrodinger's biography by Moore. I think it's a very very nice biography, and because I used to visit Schrodinger Institute in Vienna, and you know they have this. So there is a there's a box full there, which is according to Moore's biography that it is. Uh, it's called the Einstein Schweinerei, you know, the Einstein's pick stack. I mean, the, the big mess that he has made with Einstein. And this is the whole thing is, so is an interesting story. Okay, so this is a long tour. Let's go back to our made pop, made, made pop.
0: I have a quick naive question. There's something called the fundamental theorem of Riemannian geometry. So it's if you have torsion-free and something that's compatible with the metric, you get a unique connection. So if he throws out the torsion-free property, does the connection then become ambiguous, or like you make yes. a choice? So, of therefore, it? there
1: are new degrees of freedom. So, whatever the connection, so this anti symmetric part or the torsion part is really a new degree of freedom. And he thought that was very important. I mean, the, this idea people have pursued later also, it has not led to anything which is dramatic or even significant. Uh, but I mean, it's mathematical, it's, it's a neat idea. It's just that it was not such a revolutionary as he thought that was. it. So, so the, the coming back to the main point, yeah. So coming back to the main point that the main ingredients were to formulate general relativity, in turning it upside down, making metric as an emergent quantity, and um, and then and then the connection as being more fundamental variable, and that is what is now has gone. So then, therefore, things which are called Wilson lines or Wilson loops became basic variables and the word loop quantum gravity comes from those Wilson loops. Even though these days nobody will use this loop so much as lines but just like string theory you know some name starts and then it becomes the name. Uh, so because string theory there are brains and there are various other things that are equally important as strings but what we still call it string theory so similarly here it is called loop quantum gravity. The better type better name would be something I would say quantum Riemannian geometry, because if you, when you formulate it in this particular way, then it turns out that basic geometrical objects like area of the screen that you're looking at right now, they all become uh, operators in quantum theory, as you can uh-huh, imagine. Uh-huh. And these operators have purely discrete spectrum. And so really geometry is quantized in the same sense as the energy, the angular momentum, the z-component, angular momentum is quantized in hydrogen atom, and so this is this is a uh, in, in important. I mean, it changes the, the picture of geometry completely, and so this is also something that you don't see in in other approaches, either the Willard David approach or the edge spaces and twister uh, approach. This kind of quantum geometry, and this quantum geometry then. Has enormous implications for Big Bang black holes and so
0: on. Okay, here are some thoughts that occurred to me. Well, one is that you mentioned there's an area operator, and then I recall that there's someone named Thiemann, Thomas Thiemann, who said that we should have a volume operator and that better gives a semi classical limit of GR. So I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that.
1: Right. So we're, you know, I, I'm one of the people who introduced the volume operator, studied its detailed properties. So I I mean, I, I, with you, and then uh, Carlo Rovelli and Lee Smolin independently developed, you know, the, the, this, this volume operator and also the, the area operators and so on. Uh, in the beginning, there were differences of opinion, there was some technical error in what Carlo and Lee had done, which is pointed out, by but, uh, but you know, at the end of it, sort of everything comes together. And we I got a kind of theory of geometry in which, You've got volume of op- the area operator, volume operator. There's also length operator. It's just that it's not as useful as a volume operator in the length operator. There's also length operator. And the volume operator is something that is that plays in what, what Thomas did, the T-man. T-man. was a postdoc of mine. Um and, and not when he when he began his work, this work, he was a postdoc of mine, but the specific papers that he wrote the series of papers on quantum spin dynamics, he started here, but then you know. He finished elsewhere in Harvard. And then he went to uh, the, the Albert Einstein Institute. That's where he, where he finished his work. up here. So he used this volume operator very cleverly in order to write, to give a rigorous formulation of Einstein's uh, yes. quantum Einstein's equations. That rigorous formulation is still being debated. It's not completely settled, but there's a huge progress. In fact, next month we got this conference um, in Lyon, in loops, um, 22, uh, every two years we're at this conference. And uh, there, there is, a, there is a talk by Madhavan Varadarajan who has made really very significant progress on this um, uh, formulation of quantum Einstein's equation. And he does use this volume operator that you mentioned.
0: Again, I don't know much about this. So my questions may be fatuous, so excuse me. So here's what I understand. So you have a fiber bundle and you have a principal fiber bundle, which for people who are wondering what that is, it's like attaching a group to the manifold at each point. OK. And there's some, compat- there's some well, it, the way that I learned it was that you attach a fiber P, and then the P has a right action, and that's G, and right. it's free. Group, and trend- group oh. action. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. OK. And and then on that, you place a connection. OK, and then a Yang Mills field is is when you take a section, and then you pull back the connection locally. Okay, so then I'm wondering. Well, what the heck was? What is Yang Mills theory? What is its relationship to that? Well, as far as I can tell, Yang Mills theory is just saying that the Lagrangian is somehow the curvature wedge, the Hodge form of the curvature, and you take the trace of that. But I don't know if that's if that's all that there is to Yang Mills. I'm sure there's yeah. more. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that's the basic
1: Yang Mills theory, right? Exactly. And, and what happens is that almost most of the play times. Uh, in yang Mills theory, that is to say, when people apply to Mingarski space time, the topological considerations are not important. So these bundles are trivial. So you, you can so it's true it's in a cross- section of a bundle, but if the bundle is trivial, then you can think of it as living in uh. spacetime itself. So most of the time, I mean there are very interesting cases where this is not the you know, you cannot do it and then you get nice topological results and so on. But when you talk about perturbative QCD and so on, uh, they are all living just um, on, on space time. You, know, you can think of just like Maxwell theory, the fields live, Strictly speaking, Maxwell field also, there's a bundle. The group there is a U1 group rather than SU3, for example, for gluons. Here is a U1 group on the one, and it's the same thing. You can have non trivial connections, but typically the topology is trivial, and so you, you don't worry about it.
0: Then what occurred to me was when you said that the metric is given in the Yang Mills case, whereas in the general relativity case, you you, well, it's, it's not given, and so, okay, in the Yang Mills case, when you say that it's given, is that because you take the Hodge dual and the Hodge dual assumes the metric,
1: or is it even more fundamental than that? Uh, right. So you take uh, yeah. So eventually, yeah, exactly. The, the Hodge dual is so again it it assumes metric only up to conformal factor. So Yang Mills theory without matter, without quarks, or nucleons, uh, is conformally invariant. So you can rescale the metric by conformal factor and the Lagrangian is invariant.
0: OK, so now let's say we're on general relativity and what we have is the connection. Then you're wondering, well, how do I recover a metric? How do I generate a metric from this? So I don't know how that's done, but I, I, from what I understand, you're taking the connection and then you're seeing what happens when I take it along a path where I begin and end at the same point. And I know you said that it doesn't have to be loops, but just the way that I'm understanding it. Okay, so you take the connection and you bring it along a loop and then you see, and then you integrate it along a loop.
1: And that gives, that tells you how much connect, how much curvature is enclosed in that read.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And that's called the holonomy, is that correct? Holonomy approach?
1: Holonomy, exactly, holonomy. So that tells you how much curvature is enclosed.
0: Okay, okay. So I'm just trying to make connections, make connections between the connections. connections,
1: Right, exactly. Um, Yeah, but I think this for us, for for undergraduates, senior undergraduates, it might be easier to sort of, so that is certainly true, but there's also sort of direct way of understanding uh, constructing kind of spatial metric, the metric in, you know, spatial part of the metric. And that is really that what you do is to take yang mills connection that you got, this, this gravitational connection you got. And then you also have the phase space variables, which are electric fields. Now, normally, electric field is just a vector in, in, in electromagnetic theory. But if the gauge group, if you have a gauge group which is higher dimension, in, in this case, the gauge group is SU2, say, then you got kind of, it's a matrix-valued object. It has um, and so it has, it's, a, it's a vector potential which takes values in matrices, but my, the values are just SU2 value. Now, SU2 is just three-dimensional. It's a rotational group. It's a, it's a double cover of the rotation group. So you've got x-directional rotation by direction and z direction. That's the group that you use for ordinary spinners in non relativistic quantum mechanics, the usual quantum mechanics up here. And in ordinary spinners, you know, that you can just use a basis of Pauli matrices. And so you can think of this vector pot- that the, both the vector potential and the electric field as ha- carrying an internal index one, two, three, which is basically component of the first polymetric, second polymetric, third polymetric. So it's a vector in space, but it also has an internal index, which is like a spin, like spin, is the internal space. It, it lives in okay. some abstract space, which is not physical space. And so you got a triplet of. Uh, electric fields, if you like. And my main idea was that, well, if you have a triplet of electric fields, then you can take this triplet, yes, three vector, and think of it as an orthonormal triad. Just define, it. I mean, there's no, there's no metric, right? So, so, so given these electric fields, three, three electric fields, I just define an orthonormal triad to be this. And then that defines for me a metric, because if I know what orthonormal, three orthonormal vectors are, then that tells me what the, I, given any vector, I can decompose into that. Okay. And I know uh, the metric. So in fact, the triad is like a square root of the metric. Metric is the square of the triad. Just like the spinners are uh, square root of vectors. It, it, okay. Int- in- pro- interesting. Spinners interesting. up here. So basically, it's really the cannot the variable which is cannot canonically conjugate to the triad that uh, the, to the connection to the uh, to the uh, derivative operator of the connection. That is what is defining for you the spatial metric. Now this is kind of a little bit of pedestrian way of doing it, but you know it's more more intuitive. Uh, you can do it also covariantly, and that is where the spin forms come into being. But then you have to really think in terms of uh, the Lorentz group at each point, and. Uh, uh, but I mean, it's just like, you know, normally how I, I, s- I explained to you in the, in the very beginning, how well, I explained to the undergraduate in the beginning, how given the F, F nu, I can electric and magnetic fields, but I can put them together to get F nu. So similarly, what I was just telling you about now is try, but you can put them so that you actually get a four-dimensional metric and not just a three-dimensional metric. And that is, that, that is what is done in spin forms
0: when I look at a course on loop quantum gravity, one of the first lessons is on something called the four legs, but it has a, it has a German name, like vi bands or vi trends, or
1: what are those called? Yeah. The, the Tetra? Are those tetrads. Yeah. Mine's, just, yeah for that, that's German, word. Fear is fear and bind is legs. So
0: Okay. And that's what you're describing.
1: Yeah. Or is that that's different? I mean.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so when you say that, that, and I know that yeah. I, I'm, I apologize for people who are wondering, like, these are, such foolish questions are so or so technical. Like, what's the point? Like, I'm just trying to clarify for myself, if you don't mind. Sure. So at first, when they're being defined, it seems like it's... I was wondering... Okay, so in general relativity, you say, okay, let me take a frame. Let me go along with the frame. And let right. me just assume that frame's orthonormal. And then when I was hearing tetra, I thought it was just talking about that. But then it sounded like they were saying, well, let me have... Another frame with those as the basis already. No,
1: no, no. This is it. What you said is exactly that. It's just a frame. It's just a frame. And when I was talking about these internal indices, just is index that index labels. This is a zero, one, two, three. Right? And, And but each of them is a vector. So there's a vector, but I'm labeling one, zero, one, two, three. So there's, there's another index other than the vector index. So there's a vector index like a mu. Yes. But then there's also an i, if like, an i goes yes. from zero, one, yes. two, three.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's where I get confused. That's where I initially was confused, at least. So let's say you have the four vector, and then you, you call them at first, like in the regular general relativity sense, let's call this this e0, e1, e2, e3. But then I'm saying I'm going to get another vector. Forget about a three that are orthonormal, and just get take one. Well, that vector obviously can be decomposed in terms of these. F- okay, so then you're saying, okay, Kurt, don't just take one vector, take another vector, those other indices, those are actually making reference to the original orthonormal yes, basis? Origin. Okay. Origin. okay. Cause I was wondering like, why, why is there
1: other indices at all? Why not just say in the same way you take these? Yeah, there is no other index. So your, your, your confusion was correct. I mean, there, are no, there is no other index. I mean, you just assume that there was another index. No, I was not referring to another index at all. It's just those, that index. No, and then the statement is that if you get two other vectors, then I would like to know, for example, what is the magnitude of each of these vectors? What is the angle between those two vectors? And the statement is that if you give me the original four vectors, which are e, E0, E1, E2, E3, then I can just look at the components of this along V0, V1, V2, V3. And similarly, I can take W, W0, W1, W2, W3. right? And then I know what the length is. The length is just minus V0 squared plus V1 squared plus, etc. And I know what the angle is. It's just V0, W, V0. So that, So that's what I meant by saying that if you give me four vectors, then I know the space-time metric. If you give me three vectors, then I know the spatial metric.
0: All right. Okay. So now let's get to the more fun questions. So when you were working with Roger, you were a postdoc under Roger when you were working on this initially. And this seems like an extremely promising approach. So is Roger a proponent of loop or did he go off in another direction?
1: Yeah. So in fact, just recently I had some correspondence with the philosopher of science was visiting Oxford. He writes to me very often asking my views and such thing. And so Roger um, Rogers has not followed it in very much. I mean, in his various books, he has said very positive things about loop quantum gravity. Uh, but at least, I mean, he hasn't sort of kept up with it, so to say. So you know, you why cannot... do you
0: think that is? He's interested well, in quantum gravity.
1: Yeah, but, you know, everybody has 24 hours in a day and uh, you have your own ideas and you feel that they're more. Oh, oh, okay. So he has his own ideas. Yeah. So he has his own idea. I mean, the last 15 years or so, he has been, uh, maybe even more, uh, so it's the last 10, 15 years, he has been really doing this um, CCC, right? This or the conformal oh, cyclic yeah, so. Cosmology. So that's not even Twister Theory, yeah, but it is, it is just my, so, so he's been focused on that. I mean, so it's not, uh, I think it's, it's one of those. Yeah, I mean, but same thing is true with me. I mean, I think that twister theory was very interesting. I started with it. I followed it very, very much until um, the mid or late 1990s, but I haven't really followed the advances or whatever is happening in the hospital.
0: Are there advances still? So there's someone or some people moving this twister field forward?
1: The, yeah, it's a smaller group. Than than there was before, but you know, particularly Lionel Mason in Oxford is doing very interesting work on you know scattering amplitudes and such things using crystal theory. But for me, the main I don't see how to use it very strongly to ask to use to, to address the problems that interest me, for example, which has to do with you know classical general relativity has singularities, what happens to them? Uh, and and well, Yeah, so so those questions, I think Twister theory is still very far from approaching and answering. Professor,
0: what is Einstein's whole argument? H O L E.
1: Right. So, when Einstein was developing this general relativity, he he had this fantastically concentrated period between uh, 1907 or 8 to 1915, seven or eight years, extremely concentrated period. At one stage, he got stuck because he had this basic idea that if you give yourself a theory, which has basic variables, as I was saying before, and you had decided that metric was a basic variable. So if you give me some initial data for the metric at time t, t equal to zero, you give all the information that is needed, which is the metric, the spatial metric and its time derivative. Um, it's like giving the position and the velocity of a particle, if you like. Then the fields that the, the field should evolve and then should actually Uh, give you a solution, but then Einstein realized that because of the coordinate freedom in general relativity, this is not true. I could give myself a metric at the initial instant of time and its time derivative. Technically extensive curvature is what it's called. It is about how this three manifold sits in the four manifold. That is a time derivative of the metric. then he found that, well, the solution is not unique because I could you could construct one solution. And I can come and make a little motion, what is mathematically called a diffeomorphism. Or in pedestrian language, we call a coordinate transformation. And that coordinate transformation or diffeomorphism is identity everywhere except in some region up here. So you started out here, <coughs> and at the initial time, you have fixed your surface completely and you're not touching it. So the initial data is exactly the same, but I just changed the metric up here via diffeomorphism or coordinate transformation, which is identity outside, but it's not identity in some little region here. And that is a whole HOLE. Then there's again a solution of Einstein's equations. So somehow there wasn't a one-to-one correspondence between specification of the initial data and the solution. And therefore for a while, he really was completely Stuck with this and saying that something wrong, how do you get out of it or something? Until the realization came that, in fact, you don't get a unique solution, you get a unique solution modulo coordinate transformation or modulo diffeomorphisms, which are identity on the initial slice because you fix the initial data. And so the coordinates or coordinate labels of a point don't have as really a physical significance are gauge dependent quantities. It's like the vector potential in, in electromagnetism, if you like, or um, Young-Mills theory. I mean, you, there's a gauge freedom there. So in Young-Mills theory also it's not true, or in electromagnetism, that if you give me a electric field, sorry, the, the vector potential and the electric field. The electric field is like time derivative of the vector potential, it's like the velocity. I get a solution, but the solution is not unique. I can make a gauge transformation. I can take the vector potential and add to it a gradient, gradient of a function, then function is zero everywhere except in some little region. And that is that is equally a good solution. So we should not ask that the vector potential should be unique. We should find out what the observables are. And the observables should take unique values. So in electromagnetism, it's simple. You just calculate the electric and magnetic fields. And then they are unique. There's no problem with the electric and magnetic fields. at all. And now, so the question is about what about general relativity? Things are conceptually subtle um, and then the, the reason is because we don't have the simple observables because you usually take tensor fields and you calculate the values in terms of components and then coordinates themselves don't have meaning so, so you have to construct invariant quantities so you can take for example curvature and contract all these indices with the metric and that is invariant that would not change at all so if you could choose I mean, just conceptually, this, in, in practice, nobody has been able to do it and it's not going to be very useful either. But if you could choose four curvature invariants, you know, Richard tensor square, Riemann tensor square, scalar curvatures, which are independent from each other, there are no algebraic relations between them. And if you use them as a coordinates <coughs> and express everything in terms of these invariant quantities, then the solution will be unique. So this is what Einstein realized, that in fact, there is a gauge freedom and we you, you just have to live it. And uh, so, so that is the whole argument, basically. And this whole argument actually has a very interesting thing in loop quantum gravity, because what are the basic tenets of loop quantum gravity is, again, that these points don't have physical meaning or the coordinate labels have, don't have physical meaning. You should not have background structures. So you have to compute observables You you cannot just ask, um, for example, I cannot ask, I should not ask, what is the area of the screen by itself? Right As a mathematical, I mean, mathematically, I can ask an object, But I should ask the question, formulate the question in 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 physical terms. Namely, the screen is invariantly defined (laughs) as a discontinuity surface. There is no matter on this side of screen and then suddenly there is a discontinuity. Right? There's matter here on the screen itself. So. so I define this screen as a discontinuity surface. And then I can ask, what is the area of this surface? Now, if I make a coordinate transformation, it acts on the metric, but it also acts on the matter field. It acts on everything. There are no spectators in this, in this drama of evolution. So if I make a coordinate transformation, if I make a diffeomorphism. Diffeomorphism is an active way of talking about coordinate transformation. Then this screen, for example, would bend; would become some look like that. But the metric would also bend, and the value of the area that the new metric will give on the new screen is the same as what the first metric gave yeah. me on the screen. So this is an observable. The area of the screen is an observable, and the reason is because matter as well as geometry are both actors, and diffeomorphisms act on them both simultaneously.
0: OK, you gave away that the question made sense and then didn't make sense. Can you restate the first way in which it doesn't make sense? Yeah. So
1: if I just say that, well, very good. So if, if I just say that, well, here is a, a certain square, right? what is the area? And the statement is that, well, I don't know. Because if I take the square and if I act on by diffeomorphism, then I will get a metric, right? And the, I I, I have the same metrics that is given to me, then I calculate this area and the area is going to be different.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: But the point is because, you know, the area is not invariant, the metric is not invariant in diffeomorphism, but what you have to do is to define the surface in physical terms and apply the diffeomorphism to everything. Metric is a physical quantity, so you apply the diffeomorphism to the metric. And you apply the diffeomorphism to this matter thing. Right? You apply them simultaneously. I mean, and then it's completely invariant, and that is very deeply embedded in loop quantum gravity. Our observ- observables that we talk about are observables in this sense, and these are relational observables. I think Carlo must have talked about this. Uh-huh. This relational view is very very important in in, uh, in loop quantum gravity. I mean, the view is already there in classical general activity, but we take it very seriously, much more seriously. In, in the of that.
0: Okay, so we just talked about Einstein's whole argument, which is not talked about much. So I, I don't think anywhere else on the internet, actually. I did a YouTube search. And so this will be one of the only videos where Einstein's whole argument is referenced.
1: By the way, as a side remark, you know, when I first, <laughs> sorry, it's a personal thing. When I first read this argument, there were tears in my eyes, really. I mean, this guy—where was he born? How could he figure this out? You know, it, it, it was really so deep and so beautiful, and you know, figuring this out, and then finally, first of all, being confused about itself is, is yes, yes—is an act of, you know, semi genius. Right? Normal people would not even understand the issue or something.
0: Why don't we stick for a moment longer on the Einstein hole argument? The way that it was explained was you have some system and then you evolve it forward and then there's a hole and and it doesn't matter if the hole is, is here or non-existent or it's larger. It still gives the same observable. Now, can you... Make that more concrete in terms of let's say there's a ball in terms of Newtonian. If you throw a ball. What would it be like? Like, give people an analogy. Like, it would be like if the solution is a parabola, we understand. But the solution could also be a parabola minus the top. Like, give some analogy. For no, people. the trouble
1: is that there's no analogy in Newtonian terms because there's no notion of gauge there. Right? And notion of gauge is critical in, in in this thing. So anytime you have like Newtonian argument or uh, Newtonian ball or something like that. There it is true that every initial data you have got Newton's laws, every initial data gives right to a trajectory, that's the end of it. You, you can't change the trajectory out here because there's no motion of gauge and but in Maxwell theory there is. And so, I can give that example using okay. Maxwell theory but, but okay. it is already a little bit abstract which is basically that I can give you the initial data out of the vector potential and its time derivative which is the electric field, I can evolve it and I get a solution but I can take Take a little ball, I mean a little region of yes. space, little hole, and in that region I just change the vector potential by vector potential. It, it goes to its original value plus gradient of a function because the vector and I take a gradient of any function. When I do that, the vector potential itself in that little region has changed, but you see that it continues to satisfy the equation uh, that was that the vector potential. Satisfied. So the point is that you should not try to, to see if the uniqueness holds for the vector potential, but for observables. And the observable for the, for the Maxwell in this case is a magnetic field, It is a curl of this A. And when I take the curl, the gradient drops out. The curl of A and curl of A plus gradient of F is exactly the same. So the E and B are exactly the same in Maxwell theory and that gauge invariant quantities and they are exactly the same it's just that in physics sometimes you you would think well I should be able to formulate things all in terms of gauge invariant quantities I, I was sure that was possible when I was a student but i know the statement is that if you wanted local physics and that locality is important part here then I would, would, would don't no they, they cannot be formulated in the gauge invariant. I mean manifestly gauge invariant Fashion.
0: In EM, the potential is not observable. It's the electric and the magnetic field.
1: Yeah, electric magnetic. However,
0: field. isn't there the Ariam or the aronoff Bohm effect? That right. exactly. So the statement. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. how does so how does one make sense of the whole argument there?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's similar, but not exactly the same because there's no initial data, which is you are evolving in the Bohm effect. So what you have is a solenoid. So I mean, think of this as a solenoid. Just forget about the yeah. This is a solenoid. And sure. then the statement is that uh, there's a you know, current going through here. And so therefore, you I carefully adjust it so that actually there is no, um, uh, that the magnetic field is all here. That okay. There's zero magnetic field out okay. outside here. Okay. And then the interesting thing is that I see the what the electron does if I start out here where there's zero magnetic field and I go around. Okay. And the statement is that there is actually... Zero magnetic field, so you you might say that nothing happens.
2: Yes, yes. Uh,
1: but the statement is that there is in fact the holonomy, if you like. I mean, you actually do get uh, effect up here because vector potential here is not zero. Okay. So it's not right to say that vector potential is not observable. Certain quantities are observable. Why? Because if I what you are you're measuring is what you said holonomy, which is really the, the the circuit integral of a mm. a dot d. Okay, Okay. But a dot dl is the same as b dot ds by by, by Stokes' theorem, right? If I take a, a vector potential up here and do the circuit integral, is the same as doing the surface integral, the flux of the magnetic field through this surface up here. And there is so, but you have to take the whole surface which is enclosed sure, sure, by sure. this, and that does include here. So the electron doesn't see the surface, but the electron actually sees. And so, that is a beautiful argument to say that, well, if you wanted to formulate everything in local terms, then the vector potential is essential, right? Because magnetic field was zero here, right? magnetic field was zero, but the electron still felt the electromagnetic field. And the reason is because there is a flux of magnetic field that is enclosed by this circuit. So, that locality requires us to introduce these variables like, which are not gauge invariant, but the, the circuit integral of a, of a um, A dot DL, which is holonomy, is gauging And
0: OK, another aspect that's not talked about much is Mach's principle. There are very few videos online about Mach's principle. So why don't you explain what Mach's principle is, why Einstein thought it was so crucial, and what loop quantum gravity says about it.
1: Okay, So <clears throat> the coin Mach's principle, or Marx's conjecture was actually, this term was coined by Einstein. It didn't exist before. So Marx never called it a principle or something. It was really coined by Einstein at that time. And it played an important role in his formulation of um, ideas about general relativity. And this really goes back to Newtonian ideas about inertial frames and so on. And at that time, in Newtonian theory it is certainly true that. You know th- things like notion of centrifugal force were very important. If you are rotating, then in your arms go out. Or the, if you are doing a salad spinner, the water goes out. You know, you, you dry the salad up here in that particular way. So, if you are not in inertial frame, if you are in a rotating frame, then there is centrifugal force. It looked like the notion of rotation is an absolute notion, mm-hmm. but in Newtonian theory, there was there are local inertial frames. And so the question was, well, then, you know, how can you tell which frame is local inertial and are you rotating or are you not rotating? And then the idea was that, well, you look at the distance stars and this, the frame defined by the distance stars is the rest is, is an inertial frame. Um, and then on the other hand, the local, so if you're rotating with respect to it, then you- I'll be
0: showing a picture of the Newtonian bucket thought experiment. Okay. And as far as I understand, Newton used that to say, no, there is an absolute notion. i uh, sorry. Yes, there is absolute space or an absolute notion of motion. And then someone else named Mach took it and said, actually, that same experiment proves that motion is relative, except you have to take into account
1: something else. Right. Namely, that it's really related to the distant stars. And it is really defined by, yeah. <laughs> So, Mark wanted to say the distance. And so, the idea was that, well, non local things, I mean, things out there determine the, the local event, kind of thing. And that idea, sort of, uh, Einstein in his writing and so on has emphasized that that played an important role. But in his later years, I think that are, there is some work, uh, historical, nice digging of work by historians of science, maybe Julian Barber, maybe other people. Um, then, Einstein himself has said that, you no, know, as a mathematical sense, in, in the mathematical terms, Marx principle doesn't make any sense. And its physical content is very weak. This is said in later, later. Why is that the case? OK, so the reason is because of the following thing. So, so the upshot of that is that, you know, as far as I know, most general literary people don't think that that principle plays a deep role or any role in the depends on who you talk to in the in, in, in actually final theory that Einstein came up with. Yeah.
0: Which is why you basically, which is why I never heard of it until recently. And I've studied general relativity and I've been taught courses in it. And almost no one else that I, that's a student knows about Mach's principle.
1: And the main point is that, I mean, the only way to formulate it is something, and that's, that's, I don't want to get too, too technical, but basically again, in terms of this initial value formulation that we, we talked about, namely some of those Einstein's equations that we got, Uh, Einstein's, there are 10, the metric has 10 components and we've got 10 Einstein's equations on the the metric. And Einstein's equation relate the curvature to uh, the stationary tensor or to to matter properties Okay. And the thing is that four of those equations are called constraint equations. In other words, they don't involve time derivatives. So they must involve just space derivatives. So they must hold at an instant of time without knowing what the time derivatives are. Okay. Um, and an example is just given by in electromagnetism, you can think of E and B, and you got equations. And you've got equation which says that divergence of E is equal to 0, and divergence I, without sources, divergence of E equal to 0, and divergence of B equal to 0. If you have sources, then divergence of E is equal to 4 pi times charge density, and so on. But then they don't involve any time derivatives. But then you have got time derivative equations, which says that e dot, the time derivative, is curl b, and b dot is minus curl e. So you get um, you get a, how, how things evolve. But there are equations. So, but you better make, start by making sure that your initial data is such that divergence of e is equal to zero and divergence of b is equal to zero. Um, now the same thing is true in Einstein's case. There are four equations which are called constraint equations. And mathematically, they are called elliptic equations. So elliptic equations are very rigid. You, know, you cannot just, I mean, the, the solutions are really given globally on an initial instant of time. Um, and so if you give me a stationary tensor matter field, then I will be able to calculate for you. Uh, I, I have to solve this equation to get the, the, the initial metric in the extrinsic curvature. There is still some freedom, but a lot of it is completely determined. And so sometimes people might say that, well, so there is max principle because, you know, matter doing out there is determining what the solution Mm -hmm. here could be. Uh, But that's not completely right, because you also have local degrees of freedom, that that matter doesn't determine this solution completely. and, and then, of course, if you say that, then you would have to say also in electromagnetism, right, that there's a max principle. Some charge density uh, out there determines what the, you know, what the electric field appears is. Uh, and and the, the statement is that yes or no, yes, in the sense that if there are no electromagnetic waves, then the answer is yes. If it's a static solution, then the answer is yes. But if there are electromagnetic waves, then part of the, in the electric field is determined by the sources, charges, but part of it is just it has its own degrees of freedom. And gravitational field has its own degrees of freedom. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why people don't take it seriously. I personally also don't take it seriously, but I may be a, a, not a total minority, but somewhat of a minority, because I think that the whole notion of inertial frames, which are so important Yes, in Newtonian physics, the whole point of general relativity was that it's lost, right? And you don't have, a I mean, you can, for, for your intuition, you can talk about local inertial frames, but I think that, you can do any every calculation answer every physical question without ever talking about inertial frames. And so this whole impetus that that, that was there about you know, what how do you know that you are inertial frame or you're not? Yeah. Uh, I mean, since you're talking about undergraduates, I mean the, I mean, you know, when you teach this elementary course, uh, there's always smart. I, I feel there's some smart undergraduates should ask this question, right? He said, wait a minute, you calculated the motion of the moon around the Earth, saying that, well, I mean, the earth center of mass I mean, is it's, it's an inertial frame, and in that I applied Newton's laws, and I solved it. But then Earth's frame was inertial, fine. But then when you t- to talk about Earth's motion around sun, then you say sun's frame is inertial, and Earth is rotating. If Earth is rotating, it could have been inertial frame. So isn't one of your calculations wrong? And to me, at least, I mean, the real answer to this real answer to this question comes from general relativity. That you don't need the notion of inertial frame. You're just calculating geodesics in the, in the two cases. And then there's no problem at all. So I think this whole overemphasis on inertial frame, I, I don't mean it's a useless notion. Yes, all, yeah, yeah sure. On the other hand, it's not. Essential. It's not something that you know on which any, any foundational issue should refer to. So, so that, that is the point about Marx's principle.
0: Okay, so let's get to black holes. What does loop quantum gravity say about singularities and black holes? It would also be great if you could outline what a singularity is and why there are problems or some people think there are issues with the concept of them.
1: Yeah. So, actually, singularities in general relativity or any theory or really arise because you start with some initial data, which is completely regular, and you evolve it using field equations. And it may turn out that the field equations say that, in fact, after a finite time, the fields become infinite. And if the field becomes infinite, you cannot evolve any further. Right? And then you are stuck, and you just have no. 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 So it's like the theory fails there. The theory comes to an end there. Now something like that may happen in other theories but one might just say that well it's not so bad because after all maybe I just need to tweak something and for that particular theory I mean I I still have space-time you know I I can ask the question about evolving and such thing but in general relativity the space-time itself is defined by this evolution so if the field becomes singular the curvature diverges somewhere then space-time itself comes to an end so it's not just that particular initial data led to a problem, but in that space-time, everything ends: Maxwell field ends, quark ends, everything ends there. So that's why singularity of general relativity, particularly the ones which are so-called space-like singularities, where everything ends, so to say, are kind of to some people troubling. To some people like me, they are gates to physics beyond Einstein. So there are opportunities. I mean, they are not. They're, I mean, this is very good for me. Um, so, historically, what happened was the following. So, I think this is important for people to know that historically, people started by um, uh, with cosmology, right? Namely, the no- Friedman solution, the, the initial singularity. So, the universe is starting with the singularity. Up here After Hubble's discovery, and it, by the way, it is really. Um, uh, Lemaitre, who understood the physics of it completely, the, the the Hubble's observation, of what it meant, and so on, and so forth, and that's why the Hubble law was renamed Hubble-Lemaitre law recently by the astronomers. Um, so th- there was actually this, this initial singularity, right, and that means that if we evolve back in time, space-time comes to an end, and so there was an absolute beginning, and this was a Issue about you know, big contention, and there were and people were thinking both ways, right? Maybe some people thought that, well, this is good because that means that you know the biblical notion of new starting at a finite time is, is 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 reinforced by science. And if you would like to, I mean again, a very interesting anecdote here is that George Gamow, who was one of the leading physicists at that time, who was working on nucleosynthesis and the notion of Big Bang really became more established with nucleosynthesis that there must have been a very hot phase of the early universe in which heavy elements were cooked. Because somehow, when you look at the abundance of um, lithium, helium, and that somehow, and, and see how much of it is produced in stars, uh, that is not really something that could be uh, produced in stars. You know, enough of it could not be produced in stars. There must be some initially. Uh, there was some other mechanism by which this was produced, and therefore there was a hot initial phase of in the universe. So Gamow actually wrote to uh, Pope Pius XIV, I think, um, at that time, and saying that, well, look, you know, there was a hot phase of the universe, the universe was also born, and Pope got very excited. And uh, so he, next. The Vatican has a nice observatory. So the next uh, conference that came, the Pope inaugurated by saying that isn't this wonderful that science and religion are coming together and so on and so forth. And (laughs) Lemaitre who was associated with the observatory had the hood spa to go to the Pope and with with one senior person and convince the Pope that it's best not to mix religion and science and keep the two things completely separately. And the interesting thing is that he was successful because Pope never referred to this again. That was that was very interesting. Anyway, so the singularities are very very important, but people had you know, various knees uh, about it. And in the 70s, you know, very British, very prominent British physicists uh, and astronomers. Uh, came up with this uh, Steady State universe theory. You know, Herman Bondi was work- working on it. Uh, and of course, Fred Hoyle was the main pushing. Uh, Jay Narliker was a student of his. Um, so, the, all, the, they were actually pushing this idea and in part because some people didn't feel that Big Bang was... Uh... In fact, the name Big Bang was, by the way, people don't know, this, all, was invented by, by, by Fred Hoyle in a pejorative way in, in, in the sense of making fun of it. I'm not yeah. serious. So, so the statement is that this big singular this initial singularities were, were, were troubling. So that is really the absolute beginning of time. And black holes, at least the, the simplest black holes, the Schwarzschild black holes and so on, they represent the absolute end of time. Because space-time ends there, and yeah, you cannot evolve. Classical generality fails, and you cannot evolve. Not only classical general but you know, you cannot evolve any field there because you cannot evolve. You need to have notion of space and time. And space notion of space and time breaks down there. So that is why it is so uh, sort of uh, important. The reason I spend a lot of time explaining about the Big Bang, I'd rather, I'd rather than right away in black holes, is because. Majority of the period in in history, people were more worried about the you know, this this absolute beginning than the absolute. And in part because it's so relatively recently that people began to accept black holes as being reality. Right. And so I mean, again, younger undergraduates won't realize this, but uh, it, it is really true. I mean, I think uh, when I was a graduate student, I had a somebody was a couple of years ahead of me, John Friedman, and he went to Give talks. He was a student of Chandrasekhar and they were talking about black holes. And in very prominent universities, prominent physicists would ask him afterwards, "Why are you working on this? Right? And mm-hmm. It's not mathematical. It's not physical." Astronomers also didn't take it seriously for the longest time. So that's why I began with the. I mean, the singularity yeah. that has been with us, but troubling a lot of people for a long time. Um, which is which is the cosmological big bang that,
0: area. And that's a meta commentary on the state of physics because some people would wonder, well, why do you care about high energy physics or extremely high energy physics when we can't reach there, when it seems like there's no predictions and so on? Well, the same argument was laid at black hole theory or studying black holes.
1: You know, I I agree, but I mean the question is always how how compelling the argument is. And as, again, how compelling the argument is in the eye of the beholder, right? And, I mean, to me as a graduate student and, you know, people who are doing general relativity, it was obvious. Right? <laughs> there are a lot of black holes or something, that was obvious. I mean, why don't we see them? Ah, we don't see them because, you know, we don't have the techniques. And, I mean, so We'll see them. I mean, not, we're, we're, we're confident about it all. I mean, chandra was 100% confident about it all. Otherwise, he would not have spent 10 yeah. years of his life thinking about these things. So. Okay, So that's what singularity is. Now, the... So so for the longest time then, right? People have believed that the singularity is the artifacts of general relativity, because we're assuming that Einstein's field equations are valid at arbitrary high densities and arbitrary high curvatures. Now, people don't realize this, but already in the 50s, in one of the editions, which I have in one of my papers, um, Einstein's um, uh, book, Meaning of relativity, uh, one of the later editions. He has an explicit statement saying one may not assume the the big bang singularity to be physical. I mean, he doesn't call it big bang. He says the the initial singularity to be to be. Uh, he says one should not assume that the, the the big the initial singularity in the mathematical sense to be physical, because one 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 may not assume the field equations. Which, his own equations uh, at arbitrarily high densities of matter and field by field even curvature. So Einstein himself outside that, by the way, but I mean, people still took it all very seriously. But I think there's a complete general consensus now that there is um, uh, that this Big Bang is an artifact of pushing general relativity beyond its domain of validity.
0: Ah, I see, I see, I see. <laughs> Is it correct to say that for the same reason that we can't evolve a black hole forward, and so we say that that's the quote unquote end of space time, is that the same reason why we consider the Big Bang to be the quote unquote beginning, in terms of just evolving it backward, we can't?
1: Right. I mean, yeah, in both those cases, I'll qualify in a minute, but that's, that's, that's the idea. That's exactly OK. So right. like, no, that's exactly right, both of those. Things. And I just wanted to say that there is, again, for undergraduates, there is a short video which is called the meaning of the Big Bang or the new meaning of the Big Bang or something like that. It's only short, it's quite short, like 15, 20 minutes, something like that. So. And there were about seven of us who were interviewed, you know, including Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose. And, and we were interviewed in a completely separate location in our home institutions. And so we did not know who else was being interviewed, what they were saying. And we all had different approaches to quantum gravity and so on. But then all of us say the, exactly the same thing, that Big Bang is not a physical singularity. You know, there's an early hot phase of the universe that everybody agrees with. That is important for nuclear synthesis and so on and so forth. But this, in the inflationary model, for example, this phase comes after the end of inflation. <laughs> so certainly not before the onset of inflation, not before the Big Bang at all. And, and people say that well, yeah, kind of, you know, the, 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 the idea that uh, in early days, you know, when people found cosmic microwave background and so on, they said, well, this is a signature of uh, the Big Bang, you know, and that I think is not is, is not correct at all. That's a statement here. It's not a signature Big Bang because it happened way after. I mean, the the hot phase the universe happened way after.
0: Way after, as in many seconds or many microseconds or what?
1: Uh, uh, no, I think it is not way after. It's not that often. Um, yeah, so it is about. Um, it's a fraction of a second, but yes, you know, yes. in, in terms of Planck times, way after fraction. Yes, yes, yes. 10 to 30 Planck times, like that, 10 to the 38 Planck times, something like that. So it's just, in that sense, will be after. Even, even more. I mean, I, the end of inflation is then. Then after that, how many e-folds pass before the uh, reheating starts? Uh, it's it's a little bit uncertain exactly how much. Yeah, so you could say of the order of seconds. Uh, because there's some uncertainty about when exactly the re- reheating start started and how long it lasted, so so on. So that is the phase at which the, that is the hot phase of the of the universe. All right. So yeah. So that, so that is idea. And then the statement is that what does loop quantum gravity wants to have to say about this? Mm-hmm. And this has been one of the sort of solid ideas in loop quantum gravity, namely that because we have got quantum Riemannian geometry, rather than classical Riemannian geometry. So we have to reformulate Einstein's equations in this new language. I like to say that, well, quantum gravity needs a new syntax. And in loop quantum gravity, the new syntax is quantum Riemannian geometry. Mm -hmm. And now when you formulate Einstein's equation in terms of quantum Riemannian geometry, there are difficulties, of course, and that's why the problem is not completely solved. But what we can do is to go to physically interesting situations and apply it there. It's a bit like we don't still have a complete QCD theory, a the quantum chromodynamics theory, but we can go to physically interesting situations and you develop approximation techniques and then make predictions and then that same concern and such. such. So here, the simple examples are simple situations that are physically interesting are uh, provided by cosmology, so the Big Bang and the black holes, right? I mean, are simple situation. And then the reason why things that important, but also there is a lot of symmetry, there. and because there is a lot of symmetry, then loop quantum gravity can make a lot of progress because many of these questions then simplify. I mean, technical questions, technical issues simplify there. So. That area is called loop quantum cosmology. And the way loop quantum cosmology is done compared to other quantum cosmologies is really keeping an eye to full quantum gravity. So it's true that one is in a simplified situation. But one doesn't sort of say that, I don't know what the full theory is, and I'll just work in the simplified situation. This is what happens in Vila-David cosmologies. Because in the full theory, there is no mathematically conceptual framework. We don't have Hilbert space, we don't know what to do and so on and so forth, right? I mean, even at the kinematical level. For even before you come down to dynamical equations, what is the basic framework in terms of which to pose the questions is not clear in, in geometrodynamics. dynamics. Whereas in loop quantum gravity, we have this rigorous framework. This quantum demand in geometry produces, provides us this rigorous framework. Therefore, we can take this rigorous framework and apply it in the simplified situations. And there's a precise sense. that are real theorems which say that that this applied to this particular situation. There you've got a certain representation, certain way, certain Hilbert spaces, certain ways of representing operators. Those ways trickle down to these particular ways of doing operators. I'm not saying there are no ambiguities, but there. I mean, there are theorems which, which tell you what the assumptions are, so they will tell you what the ambiguities are. But they're, they're higher order things, but not, um, And within this, the statement is that um, uh, loop-quantum gravity has a very uh, loop-quantum cosmology has a precise mathematical framework, and precisely because it encapsulates the quantum nature of geometry, the fact that the area operator has a discrete spectrum plays a very important role in this case. Because of that, uh, classical Einstein's equations receive quantum corrections. And these quantum corrections are such that the evolution of, the, of, Einstein's, of quantum Einstein's equation doesn't break down at the singularity. You can continue across it. So you can look at it at various levels. At a heuristic level, you can think of it as follows. This is space-time continuum is an approximation. And I've given this very often analogy because I think it really is a good analogy, which is that you look at, for example, my, my shirt up here. And my shirt up here is really, for all practical purposes, this is two-dimensional continuum. You want to sort of see it's continuum. It's clear, it's continuum. But you just have to take a magnifying glass and see that it is, is over by one-dimensional threads. There are constituents. It's not a continuum. It really is one-dimensional. It's not two-dimensional. But the threads are packed together so much that it looks like a two-dimensional continuum. And the statement is that the same is true with the quantum Riemannian geometry. Namely, our space-time continuum is an approximation like this shirt. There are fundamental building blocks, and these fundamental building blocks are come from these Wilson lines of these connections up here. And there is a precise mathematical framework that is what enables you to calculate the spectrum, the eigenvectors, and eigenvalues of the area operator, the volume operator, length operator, and so on and so forth. And what one finds is that the length that the area has a non-zero minimum value. So it's not a continuous thing, because the spectrum is discrete, you've got zero, of course, but then there's a gap. And then there's the smallest eigenvalue. And that is called the area gap. And then when you go to quantum Einstein's equations, this area gap plays a fundamental role. Again, let me make a detour because you talked about holonomies just a while ago. And we talked about the bohm effect, which is also holonomy. So, what holonomy does is to really look at the flux of curvature. So, one way of defining the curvature is really in terms of in terms of holonomies. And the statement is that you you have to take the holonomy and you have to divide by shrink the loop until it shrinks to zero in classical general relativity. But in quantum Riemannian geometry. You don't do that. You, you you can only shrink it up to a minimum area eigenvalue. And when you have shrunk it to a minimum eigenvalue, then you get an operator. And there's a fundamental non-locality for this curvature operator, but at the Planck scale. It's not because this area that it encloses is of the order of Planck. Sorry, area. there's a
0: non-locality
1: associated with what? There's non-locality in, 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 in the curvature operator. So the curvature is defined by taking... The holonomy around a closed loop and dividing it by the area, like is because the holonomy for electromagnetic field will be B magnetic field times area b dot ds, which is magnetic. And then if you know know what the magnetic field here is, you want to divide by area and take the limit. So the loop particular point up here. But here we I mean you cannot shrink it to zero value because. There's, there's a there's a minimum, so you shrink it so to the, the minimum. The spectrum
0: value. starts at a non-zero
1: value, or the so spectrum there is a zero value, but then the statement is that the you cannot shrink this loop to a zero value. I mean, if you try if you shrink it to the zero value, there is no. I mean, the the, the, the framework doesn't let you shrink because it it's discrete, value. or it's it's discrete, it's discrete exactly. It's discrete. The spectrum is discrete, so you come to the minimum non-zero value. And then the statement is that you have this holonomy. That gives you the, the curvature times, if you like, this area. Right? I mean, uh, but that's all you have. You, you, you cannot have curvature at a point. You just have we, we have these operators. So there's a, that, therefore, there's a non-locality at the Planck scale. Because all, all you have is this holonomy, which is like, I don't know precisely what the value of the curvature is at this little point where am i pointing the finger. But I know the average curvature value in this Planck scale.
0: And sorry, to be clear, when you say that there's non-locality, are you referring to the connection changes from point to point? Is that what you mean? Or is there something different?
1: No, the connection does change point to point, but the statement is that the curvature is calculated only by the connection. Only in terms of this Wilson loops the holonomies. And therefore, I cannot define the the, the, the formalism does, does not let me define the curvature at a given point. It only tells me what the curvature is. Average culture uh, curvature is on the surface of Planck. Line. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Along the holonomy. So in, in terms of surface, average yes. culture curvature is in, in, in a Planck, Planck area. Yeah, my mistake. So I, so was thinking, I was
0: thinking I was mistaking local and non-local at the same time. Right. Okay, continue. But
1: this is a non-local at a Planck scale. It's not non-local, the, like Bell's inequality. So this is very, very, our EPR paradox. This is very, very low, non but but the statement is that i just i'm saying this because you brought up the no the notion of uh, a while ago yeah so therefore what happens is the curvature also has a maximum value it cannot be infinite in lokon there's a maximum value and that maximum value not surprisingly is related to the area again the matter density has a maximum value and the matter density is which 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 is is really given by the goes like some constants divided by the area gap cube. Now, if you let the area gap go to 0, now the, the classical limit, then the maximum value becomes infinite. But in loop quantum gravity, area gap is a well-defined number. And therefore, you've got a maximum. It's a very large number, right? Sure, sure. But it's finite. But the precise number is fine, exactly. And therefore, in loop quantum gravity, in loop quantum cosmology, what you do is you take a wave function of the universe, in other words, You first start out with the classical space-time, classical solution of Einstein's equations, like one of the Friedman, Lemaitre, Roberts, and Walker cosmologies. And then you take a wave function, which is very sharply peaked on that geometry at a given instant of time, at late time. So that wave function describes the geometry. And you evolve it back in time. And as you evolve it back in time, it remains sharply peaked along some geometry. If you want it far forward in time, it remains sharply peak along geometry is the classical solution that is forward. okay. function. But if you evolve back in time, then it follows the classical solution until the matter density or the curvature is about 1000 or 10,000 times the Planck curvature. And then it deviates. So the quantum correction becomes very important. It's almost negligible until the Planck density is about 10,000 times or 1,000 times, the, uh, sorry, matter density is 10,000 or 1,000 times the Planck density. Until then, classical relativity is an excellent approximation.
0: Right, interesting, okay.
1: And what this means is basically that the classical trajectory is still in the peak of the wave function. You know, the wave function is sharply peaked. The classical wave trajectory is still, is still in, that, in that wave function, you know, one standard deviation of the wave function. But then when that density is reached, then the wave wave packet is still sharply peaked, but does not follow the classical trajectory. Classical trajectory would run into singularity. So, if I think about singularity as being on the left side here, and the classical trajectory is going into the singularity, left side here, and the classical trajectory is going into the singularity, right? It, it's just your right side. Classical sure. trajectory is running into singularity. What happens? That it is approaching, approaching, approaching singularity, and then bounces. It bounces away from the singularity. And again, by the time the curvature becomes thousand times one upon thousand times the Planck curvature, or density is about one upon thousand times Planck density, then classical general relativity, classical general relativity is again a good approximation. So there is a quantum bridge which joins a pre-Big Bang branch of the universe with the post-Big Bang branch of the universe. Mm-hmm. So that is what is happening. And to me, the big surprise was when I first found, it, found this out, I, I didn't believe this. right? You know, I thought maybe this is very special because we're using very special, very functional special initial conditions. So I was working with two postdocs, um, um, Thomas Pawlowski and Param Singh. And we, I met, and they were the ones who were doing the HARC and the calculation, the computations, not the, the, the analytical part. I had done most of a lot of it. Um, but the, and so I kept asking them to change these parameters, do this, do that, to see if it is robust. And after about six or eight months, I was convinced that you know, it's really there, this not. And then a couple of years later, we found analytical methods to get the same results with appropriate approximations. So now, by now, there are many, many different ways that of checking this result, that in fact the wave function does bounce and you get... Um,
0: is this what's called the Ashtakar bounce?
1: I don't know. It's called The Quantum Bounce. I don't know. Maybe it is. Okay, okay.
0: When I was speaking to Salvatore Pius, and I know I sent you a a question from him, he kept referring to the Ashtakar bounce, and he was saying, Kurt, you have to read... Yeah, so I think
1: that's true that I was who
0: Saying you have to read conversations on quantum gravity. Ashtakar will blow your mind. He told me, read all the conversations except yours, and leave yours for last, because he said (laughs) yours is the best one, and he was super excited. And so at some point later, we're going to get to his question.
1: All right, so that is what happens. And that, and then in cosmological models, people have done many things. You know, first, it was done just by the simplest models, which are spatially flat, which correspond to our observed universe, which seems to be spatially flat. But then, you know, to make sure it is robust, people have added spatial curvature to it, people have added inflationary potentials to it, people have added anisotropies to it, and uh, collectively we have found that the bounce is very robust. Now, nonetheless, in cosmology, things are reasonably simple because of a very high degree of symmetry. When it comes to black holes, it is the same question. As you say, is the end of the universe and as opposed to the beginning of the universe, for at least for non-rotating black holes. I will talk about rotating black holes just in a minute. Um, so non-rotating black holes are singularity it's again, space-like. So it is really like the Big Bang singularity, but it's in the future. Its nature is very different. The part of the curvature which blows up at the Big Bang is very different from the part of the curvature which blows up at the, at the black hole. And that is why Penrose often refers to the two as being very different and therefore they should be handled differently and so on and so forth. Um, so, what, so therefore, as a result, we do not have as many tests and as much detailed investigation in the black hole case as we have in the Big Bang case. But there are a fair number of calculations after having said that they appear in physical review letters people have a lot of references people you know build on it I and mean, not just uh, you know hundreds of papers written on, on the basis of those and so on and so forth. so it's, it's not um, it's not a beginning stage by any means but it's certainly' also not not, not not really finished stage So what do we know so there again what we find is that it is somewhat different but we we'll find is that there is actually uh, a bounce across singularity. So the universe doesn't end at the singularity of the Schwarzschild space time. But you can actually continue the, the, the evolution across that singularity. Now, what is it that happens? What are the differences? Well, in the black hole case, as you know, there is an exterior region, which is the normal region that we live in and so on and so forth. And there is a region of black hole inside the horizon. And here what we're doing is to look at the region inside the horizon because the singularity is inside the horizon here. And so <clears throat> you look at that region inside the horizon and then then you evolve and then, then see what happens. Here. But inside the horizon is called a trapped region. The reason is because light is trapped. So basically, think of the horizon as being, you know, this is time, and this is space. So I think of the horizon as being a null surface like that. And therefore, if I light a beam of light up here, normally the beam of light would actually expand out. And there will be part which also goes inside the light bulb, so it contracts. But we, what we see is the one which is expanding out. So inside the black hole, the expanding branch actually contracts. That is why it is called a trap region. So, this expanding, what would be normally a light front which is expanding, is actually contracting and goes into singularity. So, inside the horizon, both the quote unquote outgoing branch and then going uh, outgoing light front and then going light front, they are both contracting. They are both contracting. Okay, inside, inside of it. Therefore, that region is called a trapped region where expansion of both light, both uh, outgoing and incoming. Is negative because it's, because it's contracting. Yeah. And what we find is that there is a... please Sorry, when you say please. contracting, so
0: the way that I'm visualizing it is with ordinary space-time type diagrams and then the cones, they're just pointing toward the black hole. There's only right. cones point... Okay.
1: Right. But, but once we are inside the black hole, the, the, inside the black hole, okay, already we are inside the black hole. So, so What you are saying is usually people draw those diagrams when yeah. they're outside the black but now, oh, where are you inside okay. the black. Oh, oh.
0: I, see, I see. I see. The
1: cones are all sort of the, the cones are pointing just straight into singularity. Nothing goes out, right? Because that, that that region is trapped. So, if the singularity is at the top of the page, up here, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's in the top of the page. Then the statement is that these, if if I got this, this is a the horizon. Then light rays coming from here, just go and hit the singularity, and that's it. Okay. Okay. They never came. They never reach you on the, the horizon. You know, they just. You know, So that light front is not expanding out. That light front is actually contracting, and that's the statement: contracting and goes into the horizon. So its area of that light. Normally, if I light 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 bulb, spherical light bulb, then the area of the light front is expanding at the speed of light, right? Here, the area of that light front is actually contracting inside, and that is why it's called a trapped region or contracting. Um, And then what happens is that. You come across a space-like surface, which was a singularity before, is now replaced by a regular surface. But this surface is a transition surface. And on the other side, what you have is really anti in which both light fronts are outgoing. Both light fronts are expanding. In normal, like in your room and my room, if I were to write a right, light, you know, strike a match or light, a light yeah. bulbs, a spherical light bulb, then there will be, what we see is outgoing one. But of course, there's light also travels inside. And that, that is just the one that just goes, goes through there. So the interesting thing here is that on the other side of the singularity, both light fronts are expanding out. And so it is called anti-trapped region. In popular terms, the, the contracting region is called the black hole type of region. And this is called the white hole type of thing. And that's why some people like to, like Carlo, for example, like to think about as as a transition from white hole, from black hole to white hole. I don't like that terminology because that has, because both black holes and white holes have connotations of there being a singularity somewhere. And there is no singularity here. Uh, It is just a trapped region where all the light fronts are contracting and anti-trapped region where they're all uh, so I think we understand a fair amount of what is happening, but if you want to know much more in detail about what happens in a black hole evaporation, that subject is still under investigation like in every other approach up here. Uh, if I have time, I just let me just say, mention one thing. One is that, because this is often mentioned by, by people as being a real problem, a real, real paradox. So as you know, supposing I have a black hole which is formed. Somehow I send in some matter, this universe is only there's nothing else in the universe. I ignore everything else. And I send in some matter and it forms a black hole. Supposing it forms a black hole of one solar mass. And then after that, nothing is falling into it uh, from outside. Then in classical generality, the black hole will just stay there. It's going to be one solar mass, it'll just stay in. But because of Hawking effect, because of quantum tunneling, it is shrinking. And it is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and becoming smaller. right? And while it does, it's emitting this quanta. And this quanta are going out to infinity. And the big question is really the following, that this outgoing quanta look like they're in a thermal state, which is a mixed state. It's not a pure state. Why is it not a pure state? Because these particles, this quanta, are created in pairs one particle goes out to infinity and its partner particle falls into the into the black hole up here now if it falls in the black hole the two are correlated and therefore you're losing correlations Uh, if you just look at infinity you're not seeing what is happening inside so you're losing correlations and that is why you've got a mixed state up here okay so it's like an ordinary quantum mechanics, except that it's happening in black holes. You're only seeing part of the system, and therefore-
2: Just
0: as an aside for people, the difference between pure and mixed is-
1: So a pure state is represented by kind of a, uh, uh, by, a by a wave function, if you like, right? It is, or by, by a element of a Hilbert space, either a vector or a ray in Hilbert space. Whereas a mixed state is represented by, uh, the state itself is represented by an operator. So basically, it is like uh, an operator in which I got just, say, for example, if I just have spin up and spin down, then I'm going to have a bra, which is spin up, bra, which is spin up, and then some probability density, plus bra, which is spin down, bra, which is spin down, some probability density, uh, or, or rather spin up, spin down, spin down, spin up, and some probability densities up here. So it is a it is a state which you cannot write as just a, a, a straightforward ket or straightforward yes. wave function, and it is sort of basically saying that the state has kind of two subsystems, and one is and they're correlated. Yeah. And yeah. if I now only look at one of the subsystems, outside the subsystem, then technically what one has to do is to trace or the, sub, the states, the subsystem that you are not looking at. And when you take this trace of that, it becomes a, a density matrix or an operator because you're taking a trace of it and you're not you're, you're forgetting part of the information. So I think that the simplest thing is to say that you forget part of the information
0: let me see if i can restate that so most of the time when one is studying quantum mechanics we hear about the wave function but technically the wave function is for pure states and even that it's not a unique member because you can take it it should be a project a member of a projective space and then most of the time we're we're dealing with our ignorance we're dealing with mixed states which are operators which are matrices instead of just a a vector so what i want to know is with these density operators, I believe they're called denser, density operators as well, or is that false?
1: Yeah, but I think it's, uh, much back, much before, but I, I don't know the history, but days of quantum mechanics, they're called. Well,
0: whatever, it doesn't matter. So with these mixed states, do they arise only from our ignorance, from looking on the outside and coarse graining, or is there is there something inherent about the system that makes it mixed in some way?
1: Right, no, I, no, I think that in, in the Context of quantum mechanics, it is in the context of black hole evaporation, it is our ignorance, but it is fundamentally, ignorance because because other particles gone inside the black hole. So inside the horizon. And so uh, so that's a uh, fundamental ignorance. But I mean, you could consider. Yeah, please go ahead.
0: Okay. So and then when on the outside of the black hole, there's these virtual pairs and then one of them happens to go inside and the other one escapes. So then does that mean equal amounts of matter and antimatter are coming out of the black hole? And is that okay, that somehow doesn't violate some law because matter is what fell in, but then sometimes antimatter is what comes out?
1: Yeah, so the statement is that, um, if for example, you're gonna charge black hole, then there'll be preferentially, there'll be preference of such charge negative, then there'll be more negative particles will come out, but also positive charged particles will also come out, come out, okay, uh, this black hole. Now, the black hole is shrinking, and we understand. So, yep. the black hole is shrinking up here, and then the statement is that um, we're looking at uh, <clears> the <throat> uh, yeah, and then and and so, as a result of it, more and more thermal radiation is going out to infinity. In other words, it is, the whole state is a pure state because you started with the pure state, but what is registered at in infinity is only part of the state, and therefore, we're not looking at what is inside. And therefore, it is actually uh, the state at infinity that we're looking at, quote unquote, appears to be mixed state. Uh Now, the point is that this has, in my view, given rise to some confusion in the literature, quite some confusion in the literature, because people take this event horizon as being absolute. And it is true in classical general relativity, but, even in classical general relativity, there are things called dynamical horizons. You see, the event horizons are absolute, but they're also very not directly physical in this following sense. You know, an event horizon might be forming in the room that you're sitting in right now. It's completely contained in the room that you're sitting right now
2: Absolutely and growing.
1: The reason is because it's still teleological. This is in response to what may happen a billion years from today, there may be a collapse of in, the ga- in, a, in, in the center of a galaxy somehow. Incredible. And then there will be a huge black hole and if I trace back the event horizon, I have to trace back the event horizon. I don't know where it is until space time has ended, so to say. I can trace back the event horizon and then I'll find that, oh, it was actually fine. In, in, There's a component in this room right now. I don't feel anything locally.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. So event horizons are, are teleological. They are not you know, people are used to event horizons only in static s- situations, like in a curve black hole or Schwarzschild black hole or something. They don't think too much about the dynamical situations. I mean, simplifying, but I mean a lot of people don't think enough in the in the dynamical situation. That that that's the point. In the dynamical situation, the statement is that event horizons, like what, what I was saying about just now, can can be very unphysical, can be very ghost-like. But there are notions called. Local quasi local notions, and like in this room, I can tell that there is no uh quasi local horizon that, in fact, were developed here. Uh, my postdocs and I developed these things many years ago. This was in, in the context of gravitation um, waves and black holes, and not, not but is now it has been used at the, starting from them also in quantum gravity because I was working both, both those areas up here. And so, if you take that more seriously, then in fact there isn't, isn't such an absolute end that there's no, there's no way for the information to come out. And that you have to couple with the fact that in loop quantum gravity, the singularity is resolved. You see, as long as there is singularity, then the kind of space-time diagram that Stephen Hawking was drawing initially, he changed his mind later, but initially he was drawing which have an end singularity at the, black hole, at the black hole singularity. Even when the black hole evaporates, the space-time still has that singularity. And then that singularity can act as a sink of information. And therefore, you know, if you, therefore it can happen that pure, you start with a pure state, but you get a mixed state, because some information fails into to that singularity, and it's completely inaccessible. But if, in fact, singularity is resolved, and you don't have this absolute event horizon, then this information can come out. At later times. And there is no a priori problem about the information coming out and the S metrics being unitary. Now, the S matrix being unitary is not the same as saying S matrix is identity. We're not saying that what comes out is what goes in. People often I'm asked these questions even in technical conferences by people who are outside quantum gravity, but they say, Well, I don't understand. I mean, how can it be? Supposing I just take a Britannica and I burn it, I lost information. So this point is that, no, you're not lost information. <laughs> Word information is funny. But you're lost information in the sense that those words that were written there, encyclopedia, are lost. But on the other hand, I had a state of the encyclopedia and the fire and everything. And then I had a final state. The final state, there's a lot of radiation that came on something, etc. And both those states are pure states, ultimately. And because they're pure states, I could Information is not lost in the sense that there's a unitary transformation which will bring me back. I mean, in practice it is hopeless, right? So, so that, that is basically the statement up here, that there's no, you can have a very complicated, I mean, when we smash particles in CERN, yeah. and then you get something else. And obviously what you get out is completely different from what you what you started out with. But information is not lost in the sense that the S metrics is still unitary. So that that is the point. Okay. So I think that you know S metrics, I we believe in loop on gravity, and most of us believe in loop on gravity is unitary. Right? Carlo and Rovelli and his group, and I and, and my postdoc, so I have been working on parallel lines. Most of the time we have exactly we are in agreement, but we're not in agreement on everything because there are open issues that we you know, we don't know which way it is going to go. And of course, with open issues, you always have prejudices about what is likely to happen because that's where you put more energy and so there are differences but on the other hand overall picture that i just mentioned so far is common to many people working in loop on so we believe the information is not, not really lost there's another issue that is very interesting that your your audience might be quite interested which is the following which is a restricted form of information loss so so let's not worry about singularity you know i told you about singularity and you know things can come out and People might say, well, I don't know if singularity is resolved, etc. Let's not worry about it. There is still a problem, quote unquote, potential uh, at the early stages. So supposing I take a solar mass black hole and I let it evaporate till it becomes a lunar mass. So it is about a millionth of its mass now from what it is. But still is a macroscopic object, this lunar mass black hole up here, right? so people have argued that even in this process some semi classical considerations are not going to be valid and something drastic has, could happen and these people were claiming things like that means that even outside the event horizon of astrophysical black holes quantum effects would be important and there would be change of picture of understanding what, what is happening altogether since ligo data which sort of shows no surprises vis-a-vis classical general relativity, these claims have been scaled back quite a lot. These ideas have been scaled back quite a lot. That astrophysical black holes would would encounter real problems. That has been scaled back quite a lot. Uh, But nonetheless, people ask the following question. Supposing I go from solar mass to lunar mass. This process, by the way, is very slow.
0: Yes, right. It takes
1: right. You know, 10 to the 76 years of this The sure. uh, universe is only you know, a billion years, so I mean 14 billion years, so it's, it's, it's huge compared to the life history of the universe up here. But still, the statement is that what is happening? So during this 10 to the 76 years, basically the solar mass has become millionth of a solar mass. So most of the solar mass, right? Solar mass minus a millionth of it has been radiated away. And its partner modes are all in here. So there's a huge number of partner modes. If there's a huge amount of what? Sorry. A partner modes, the modes which have gone away, the modes of the of the field, like okay, the radiation which goes out. People call it modes, modes of the field. Yeah. So this part, these modes have gone away, uh, gone to infinity, and their partners. You might call them particles. People don't use the word particle because in Fields in curved space time, the notion of particle is not so sharply defined, so people talk about modes rather than particles. Uh, but the, the statement is that this, these modes, so it's particles that they're, they're gone away and their partners are on the inside, and so a huge number of correlations is lost, right? Because it's, it's almost the same as the mass of the sun, right? It's mass of the sun minus uh, one minus one millionth, of of and so there's a huge number of these modes lost. but by now. The, the radius of the horizon has shrunk. And how much has it shrunk? Well, it is, I shrunk as much as the Schwarzschild radius of a lunar mass black hole. Now, how much is it? Roughly, it is a millimeter. So people say, well, wait a minute, I got this little thing with a millimeter sized thing, right? And how can it hold so many mores? These more the partner modes are all here. I and mean, there's just no way it can hold all, this, all these little mores." And, and, and there's more sophisticated arguments, but that is the basic argument up here. And, and therefore, there's something, some semi-classical considerations must go wrong way before the, the solar mass black hole has shrunk to a the mass. That is the argument that is. But then when we look at more detail, first of all, not taking the event horizon so seriously, but looking at this quasi-local horizons that I mentioned before, and we look at the back reaction Right. In other words, this there is over 10 to 76 years. You know, almost the whole solar mass of black hole, solar mass of black hole minus a millionth, has fallen in it. So of course, that is going to change the geometry inside. It's not going to be the same geometry as before. And so, the question is, what is happening to this geometry dynamically? Right? How is it changing? And what we find is, again, this is done independently by several people the same conclusions, that what happens is that if you look at a space-like surface, constant time surface, inside the horizon of a black hole. So it is anchored on the horizon. Uh, and therefore, it has a kind of a two-sphere here on the, on the horizon, right? I mean, a, a two-dimensional sphere up here. And then inside, the, the it's, it's like a tube, right? It goes inside. The space-like surface looks like a tube up here. Now, in the beginning, the tube has a short radius of a, of a solar mass black hole, so it's about a kilometer radius, and, and the length up here is also kilometers, roughly comparable. It's not, it's not, not much difference. But in this 10 to 76 years, the, the aperture of the black hole, the, the portion from which it sort of communicates with the outer world, which ends on this quasi local horizon, that shrinks, and that I shrink to a millimeter now. But what happened to this tube? Well, amazingly, this tube gets longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. You say, yeah, but how much? Well, it gets longer like 10 to the, I don't know, I forgot, I should have looked it before, but you know, like 10 to the 80 light years. Light years, not not centimeters, light years. So this tube is huge and long. Yes, and it's pinched too. And and it's pinched, right, exactly, as in this. The, in the, in yeah, it's, it's sort of it's pinched and it's like longer and longer, and therefore, you know, this what people call modes, which are inside the inside the inside this tube, the part of the mode, like in inflation, they get elongated because this this thing was small and then it became even longer and longer and longer. So inside the modes get elongated, with this, with, as the geometry becomes longer and longer, the the the, the length proper length becomes. And so they become what people call infrared, right? They're very, very, very low energy. Mm-hmm. Each of these photons or each of these particles, if you want to think in the particles or modes, is going to be very low energy. And therefore, you can have lots of them without any problem. And so the, there's no paradox in that sense, because if you take into account properly that it's not an event horizon, but a causal horizon, and that these surfaces you have to take into account the background, the, the back reaction of the geometry. The geometry changes so much that it is perfectly fine to accommodate a huge number of mores, <coughs> even though the endpoint has only a millimeter, a sphere of millimeter. And therefore, you, you have this huge amount of energy, which is almost a solar mass of energy, and huge number of mores up there. Um and um, uh and there's no problem. So 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 this this is a kind of a I mean it's not a new idea. I been mean, look on graduate people, I've been working on it for you know six, seven, eight years, but a lot of people don't realize that's relatively this. new. Yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting, I think. So so already the semi-classical region where solar mass black hole becomes a lunar mass black hole, it looks like there is an apparent paradox. But in fact, if you look at the the apparent paradox is how can a little thing like that hold so many modes? and the point is that it's little thing only vis-a-vis the outer world is concerned. It has internal structure, this surface has internal structure which is huge. We used to call it bags of gold (laughs) that you can have a little throat but a huge bag of gold. Now it's not a huge like that, it's more like Tube, it is the same area. The volume is quite large because of the, even though the surface area is small, the volume is very
0: large. Okay. Now you just mentioned this word, outer world, which we're going to get to. But how about we take a small break? Yeah, and, let's take
1: a break. I'd like to And
0: then we'll get to
2: we'll get to Salvatore Pius's question, and then the inner world. Professor, I have a question about ADM
0: decomposition where one assumes global hyperbolicity to form a a Cauchy surface and so on. And I'm curious, is that a reasonable assumption that this can always be done? Or does that reject a certain class of solutions to general relative to Einstein's equations? Hear that sound? Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars Rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com slash everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to h-e-n-s-o-n-s-h-a-v-i-n-g.com slash everything and use the code everything.
1: Yeah, so it does have, I mean, ADM decomposition has to do with the dividing space space-time into space and time It's a 3 plus 1 decomposition, and uh, uh, it breaks a manifest covariance of general relativity, if you like. uh, but I, on the other hand, it, you know, if you look at this, the space of solutions are exactly the same as the space of solution of general relativity, so it doesn't lose anything from general relativity, except if the space-time is not globally hyperbolic, I mean, assume the space-time is globally hyperbolic. In other words, it admits a Cauchy surface because it is based on the initial value formulation. Uh, There are solutions like Gordon Universe which are closed time-like curves, which are excluded in the ADM formulation. But most people don't consider this as being a serious drawback of the ADM formulation.
0: And the global hyperbolicity condition is that related at all to the cosmological constant or no?
1: No. No, it's not it's not related to cosmological constant so you could have globally i mean most people most of the space times people use in cosmology with the cosmological constant are all globally hyperbolic there's no no problem at all um but i mean you could also construct non globally hyperbolic space-time with a cosmological constant it's not very difficult but people think of global hyperbolicity as a physically reasonable assumption there's a widely doesn't mean that other things that totally people should talk about on space-time, but there's more exotic possibilities. So
0: like there are closed like curves, at least in Girdle, like there's a Girdle universe, which
1: Girdle so, universe has closed time like curves, and so yeah.
0: So when people say, Hey, closed like curves are you can't they're unphysical, well, there's nothing about general relativity that says you can't have closed time-like curves, right. correct?
1: Right. So it is true that that ADM framework and most of the Things that people do, you know, even classical general relativity, and they use the ADM framework very heavily in numerical relativity and so on and so forth. Um, There are versions of ADM framework, but they use them very, very much. Uh, They all assume global hyperbolicity, you know, in the black hole, uh, LIGO problems, numerical relativity problems, everywhere it is assumed to be globally hyperbolic, and ADM framework is widely used. So I don't think you lose anything. Now the question is. For something like quantum gravity or something like conceptual mm-hmm. structure or something could you do something without the three plus one decomposition and in fact uh, the you you said you had such sent mm-hmm. me some some uh, paper uh, and that paper just belong with be, begins with the quotations by lagrange and so on and it turns out that there was a lagrange bicentennial i think uh, which was uh, Uh, there was a special volume for that and and, uh, I was asked to write an article and it is true that Lagrange himself actually suggested this very beautiful, I mean he led the seeds of it I should say, which is developed by other people later on. this very beautiful way of doing things without any decomposition into space and time, Uh, even in particle mechanics. The idea there is the phase space is not x and t or x and x dot at at any instant of time, but the whole solution, dynamical solution, it's like the block in university. like right? it's a it's the whole solution of uh, the, the entire particle trajectory is a point of the phase space. So it's called the covariant phase space formulation. And I used, I mean, I developed, I developed that for field theory um, when I was doing quantum field theory in curved space time in the '70s already. And then, i mean I taken these ideas and they were not used. Until then, as far as I know, for field theories, um, and then in the, uh, in, in the for this volume, then I looked at general relativity in the covariant uh, phase space formulation, which does not use space time. In, in, in decomposed to space time into space and time, and I showed that in fact you do get things like the ADM Hamiltonian and even the so called the at null at uh, the, the, in presence of the gravitational waves. You have got so called Bondi energy and bondy for momentum. Just like you've got ADM, I don't know if it doesn't energy and three momentum. You also have the same quantities that, uh, in presence of radiation, which actually decrease in time because the gravitational waves uh, go away. ADM four momentum is conserved because it includes everything. And, and, um, so we, we recovered all those things using covariant phase-space formulation without any 3 plus 1 decomposition. So it's possible. And I was at time, at some time quite interested in thinking that whole quantum theory could be done with a covariant phase space. But then as time went on, I realized that no, that's not really possible because basically what quantum theory does, for example, in quantum tunneling is precisely allows certain, effectively is allowing trajectories which are not classically allowed, right? They're classically forbidden. There's something which is alpha particle inside the nucleus can actually come out. Classically, it could not do that. There is a probability that it comes out. But classically, there is no dynamical trajectory classically. The potential is such that there's no dynamical trajectory that would allow you for the alpha particle classical dynamical trajectory to leave the nucleus and come out. I, all right, if you like, you know. Mechanically, there is a probability that a stone on the ground could spontaneously come and break my window up here. And so, it's a very minor probability, um, but, but there's a probability that that could happen. Classically, it cannot happen. There's no classical dynamical, trajectory. there's a kinematical trajectory, so that's why. Feynman developed some more histories approach in which he allowed kinematical trajectories which are not necessarily dynamical.
0: For those interested in hearing more about the Gödel universe, visit the link in the description as some physicists have animated it as well as they give more of an explanation as to what the Gödel metric is and its consequences.
1: So the point is that all of quantum physics cannot be captured by if you restrict yourself from the beginning to the space of classical solutions. And the covariant phase space is the space of classical solutions. It is isomorphic with the standard phase space, which is X and P phase space, because if you give me an X and P, I get a unique dynamical trajectory. So the covariant phase space is like the canonical phase, I mean it's mathematically is equivalent or something. But as far as quantum theory is concerned, I, I felt that I do, I still today feel that it's not possible to use base quantum. Quantum theory, uh, starting with the cl- classical uh, point of departure being the covariant uh, phase space. I think you have to use, uh, uh, if you want to use a phase space, you, you do need to use a canonical phase space. Then you have these wave functions of X only, they are not wave function of classical trajectories, space of classical trajectories up here.
2: Um,
1: and so I think that there is classically, you can <coughs> avoid 3 plus 1 splitting. You can consider a to phase, but it's not very useful for quantization, I believe. Mean. Did I answer the question?
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and briefly, you mentioned, okay, for people who are wondering what's the context, what the heck is this paper I referred to, well, ADM decomposition is extremely important in loop quantum gravity and other approaches. And then on the Wikipedia page, there was some controversy that perhaps ADM decomposition is not always allowed or not always admissible. And so I was asking Professor Ashtakar, what is his opinion on this? And can you take a look at this paper? So that's what that was about. Okay, now you also mentioned Feynman's sum over all paths. And as far as I know, in loop quantum gravity, there's, a, there's something similar where we sum over graphs, but it's not like we sum over all possible graphs. So you place some conditions on the graphs. And I'm curious, so are those conditions you feel like justified? Or eventually you want to get to some approach where you sum over a quote unquote, all graphs?
1: No, so some are all kinematically, kinematically possible graphs. But the difference in loop quantum gravity is that, which is conceptually quite interesting difference, that one is not looking at something or classical trajectories. In other words, because the classical trajectories would be, this is important, classical trajectories would be classical four geometries, all possible classical four geometries. Here, what one is doing is one is, Summing over trajectories which are in quantum remains in geometry right, from the beginning, so they are not smooth metrics, but there are these two complexes with, uh, with some data on them, colored two complexes. One says it, but it is all possible. I mean, the I goal see. is all possible. In practice, of course, you know you do approximation, just like what one does in quantum field theory in way. Anyway. So therefore, I start completely right to say that in loop quantum gravity, one uses ADM you know, framework. Starts with ADM. It's true that some people do that, but it's not yes. necessary start the ADM framework, uh, particularly in spin forms. But even in canonical picture, right? I mean, people you can say ADM-like framework which, in which there is three plus one decomposition. So that, that is fair, that, because it, what people use is the is the framework that I gave, and then people modify it, right? Which which is based on connections and not metrics. It's not the ADM framework. Uh,
0: Let's get to Salvatore Pius's question. Which I sent you a large PDF about, which actually he sent me. So I'm going to put that in the description for people if they'd like to look at. And as for the question itself, I'll quote from Sal, who says, Professor Ashtakar, what do you think of Salvatore Pius's idea of the super force, quote unquote, does it exist at the Ashtakar bounce
2: critical point?
1: Okay. So the. I mean, I, I did go through what you have sent me. Um, this super force is supposed to be given by, I think Newton's constant, divided by some power of the speed of light, so that the dimensions are the dimensions of force of uh, There is no bar in it at all. But it is claimed that some, at least in the couple of pages that you sent me, it was claimed that somehow it is the unification of all forces and the super force arising from there and so on. Uh, it's, I mean, I don't see how, it's a completely classical idea, and I don't see how it, it can be. It can incorporate uh, weak interactions, strong interactions, which are quintessentially quantum mechanical, and even electromagnetic interaction because electroweak go hand in hand together uh, because of unification. So I, I, I mean, it, I don't see how this super force can be anything like fundamental in, in, in any sense. Uh, as far as the quantum bounce is concerned, it is true that I mean, it's, as I was saying before, I, I was myself surprised that for the longest time, uh, until you know the density becomes thousands or ten thousandth of Planck density, um, classical picture is perfectly fine, and then suddenly this new quantum effects take into picture, and in heuristic terms, one often says that gravitational force is normally attractive, but then suddenly this quantum effect becomes, the quantum corrections become, they're always repulsive, but that completely. Yes, yes, yes. And they suddenly dominate in this Planck regime and then overwhelm the classical gravitational attraction. That's what people say. That, that's what I say or other people say. I, I should say that this is one of those things in which people in physics uh, literature, I mean, advanced physics people or graduate students, they understand what, I, what it is meant. I mean, there is no such thing as gravitational force Already in classical general relativity, right? I mean, it's a manifestation yeah. of curvature. But I think mean, this is a way of just shorthand way of talking about, uh, about the bounds. Uh, so I just want to make sure that that is also true that there is force is not a fundamental concept either in classical general relativity or in quantum or, or in quantum cosmology or quantum gravity. Uh, what we have is Lagrangians like, and Newtonians and propagators and so on and so forth.
0: And also when a physicist uses the word force now, at least in high energy, they generally mean interactions. They don't mean F equals MA. Yeah, exactly right.
1: Exactly. Here it's really, really but
0: I think that the word force should not be used because it terribly confuses people.
1: I agree, but on the other hand, it's sort of just in English language to say that. Well, it this... Classical interaction dominates for a long time, and then quantum interaction just takes over. It just doesn't communicate. Yes, I understand. So that's a shorthand, but it's uh, it's not. It's just a shorthand.
0: Yeah. Now, briefly, before we get to string theory and the comparison between loop and string, loop, QG, and string, uh, talking about the Big Bang, we didn't get to what occurred before the Big Bang.
1: So it depends on... Basically, what one is doing in all these models is when it's starting at a given instant of time, as I said, and in the post-Big Bang, in our branch of the universe, where the universe is away from a Planck regime, so that we can trust classical general relativity, take a wave function which is sharply peaked, and then you're borrowing it back. So if, in fact, in this post-Big Bang picture, what you have is a, is, is a classical solution that your wave function is peaked at, is the... Uh, Specially flat, Friedman, Lemaitre, Robertson-Walker universe. Then what happens is that after the bounce, uh, it, it joins on to another, specially flat, uh, universe. Just goes back. It's not necessarily symmetric. It depends on the initial state up here. It's not it's the time symmetric always. It can be time symmetric, but it doesn't have to be time symmetric. It depends on the state that you have chosen up here, which is, because the, the many sharply peaked states that you can choose. Okay. Um, But still, it's basically on the other side, there's another large spatially flat universe. If on the other hand, and and also if you started out with what is called open universes, where there is spatial curvature, it's not spatially flat, but the spatial curvature is negative. Then in the open universes, it turns out that um, uh, there's again a a branch, which is uh, in, in the past, like in the spatially flat case. But if you started out with a what is called space, positively curved uh, spaces, space sections, which is going to be three sphere, so topology is that of a three dimensional sphere instead of a R3 instead of a Euclidean space, then you get classical relativity says that, well, you start with the Big Bang, the universe will actually expand out, and then there will be a recollapse, and there is a big crunch of it. So in this case, what happens if you start with a big bam, I mean, the general relativity says that. So now here, if you start in the middle and you go back, then again, you get a universe, which is again, spatially closed. So again, three sphere topology goes on the other side, but then that universe is going to go and then there's going to be a big crunch singularity, classically, but quantum mechanical is a big bounce. So that I, there is an infinite sequence of these big bounces and big... Oh, there's an infinite sequence of them. In, in okay, so let, let me just restate this
0: because I want to make sure that the profundity of this isn't lost. So if we rewind our universe back, we get to the Big Bang. And then the claim here is that a possibility is that prior to the Big Bang was another universe that, from its perspective, was crunching to a Big Bang, which produced ours. Because there's this bounce that occurs once you get to what's what we think of as the singularity. Okay, that, and that's under the loop quantum cosmology model. Okay, so from my understanding, prior to 10 seconds ago, it was, this is our universe, we're going back to the Big Bang, and then we think, well, this could have started from the crunch of another universe. So let's imagine that, let's imagine it did. But then I was wondering, well, loop quantum cosmology says nothing about this other universe. Where did it come from? Does it just expand forever in that direction? Now you're saying that, oh, no, actually, it it could we
1: could have infinite cycles. No, no, it depends on the quality. No, it depends on your assumption, it's not, it's, it look on cosmology or, or just like general relativity it doesn't have a specific prediction. You have to tell me the matter content of the universe, so so if the classical general relativity, you have um, what is called critical matter density. If the matter density in the universe is less than some amount, then the universe would be what they call spatially open. If it is exactly the critical density, then it is specially flat. And if it is bigger than special the the critical value, then it is closed universe. Okay. So classical generality also doesn't, it's it's an observational question. And so, but these are the possibilities. And what I outlined was what happens in the three possibilities in loop quantum cosmology. In the three three possibilities, in in the possibility where the matter density is less than or equal to the critical density. You just have one bounce, and then the statement is that yeah, there was a the universe which was pre 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 bounce bang, and there are a lot of ideas about I mean calculations about what was the nature of that universe etc. But maybe that's that's going too far. We'll have
0: another discussion because of we have so many physics questions, but there we also want to get to some questions regarding
1: consciousness. So yeah. one So the yeah. statement up here is that it really depends on the spatial topology. the spatial topology were closed, but then I should just add that one guys oh, but then we know something about our universe today. So what is a <laughs> which one is it? So it looks that overwhelmingly that it is spatially flat. It's not, it's not, it's not closed universe. I mean it's not. There's always going to be some error in observational error, but it is supposed to be, I mean there's all, there's a general picture people use is that it's spatially flat. So, so in that case, there is, there is not a multiple bounces. Yeah, please go ahead. Now. Sure, let's compare string to loop. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so string theory started with particle physics uh, uh, kind of emphasis and loop kind of gravity started with the uh, general relativity emphasis. So from the beginning, you know, the ideas were different. Particle physics was emphasizing field theoretical methods and in, in, in the beginning was perturbative methods. Um, but all the time, uh, they also started giving up, paying more attention to the, the non-perturbative methods. And now m- much work is done in non-perturbative methods, particularly with this ADF-CFT formulation. So in that sense, I mean, that. Conceptually philosophically, they're coming together. And also the importance of background independence is something that is more and more appreciated. As, as the string theory went further and further away from the perturbative methods, this was more and more appreciated. The difference is based still the difference, namely that in string theory, there isn't so much because it of its origin particle the physics, there is so much emphasis on unification of all interactions, whereas loop quantum gravity it is not that people are not interested. Of course, they're very interested. But the main goal is not unification of all interactions. The main goal is really quantum nature of geometry. Now, one might say, that, well, you could never understand quantum geometry until you bring in all interactions. That may be the case. But what we have seen is that we could actually understand electromagnetic interaction by itself. Then it was unified with electroweak interaction. And then, you know, people at some stage thought that Really, to understand strong interactions, you need the grand, grand Unified Field Theory, in which you've got, in which you got um, all the, all three: the electromagnetic, weak, and strong interactions together. People tried that for a long time. They even had a prediction that proton should decay. The proton doesn't decay, and since proton doesn't decay, I think that idea is sort of petered out. That that should be the only way to do things. And people are just looking at QCD by itself, and huge success in looking at QCD by itself. So I don't see why looking at gravity and looking at the fundamental conceptual issues that are posed by gravity, which are unique because it's a theory of space-time structure is not going to teach us huge amount of things more. I mean, it has already taught us in classical relativity, you know, completely new physics, right? Gravitational waves, Big Bang, black holes. So the question is, I mean, we can look for this qualitatively new things, like what happens before the Big Bang, what happens to them? Uh, black holes, black hole evaporation and so on and so on. and that's what we are doing in look. Now because of this I think in partly because of this emphasis on unification in string theory there are all kinds of elements that were brought in. first was supersymmetry. second was uh, um, uh, higher dimensions and then there was positive uh, the, the negative cosmology constant. And the point was that because you brought in supersymmetry and then you looked at the quote-unquote natural ground state and there was a negative cosmological constant and so on. And, and you know, the, the conferences in string theory when people, when first the idea came up that in fact the cosmological constant is positive and some preliminary evidence came up, there are conferences in which very prominent string theories, theories are on record have said that it, it can't be. It will go away. I mean, this is completely wrong because uh, because we know from supersymmetry that uh, it must be negative, and it's not negative. You know, it is positive. So there are these ingredients. I mean, if these are not optional things in string theory, they lie at the foundation of string theory: higher dimensions, supersymmetry, and uh, and the negative cosmological constant. None of which are seen in nature. The people have tried hard looking for this and that. Now, it doesn't mean that tomorrow people won't find it, but I, I should emphasize that even if they were to find supersymmetry, it doesn't mean string theory, right, there's just supersymmetry, there may be many theories, supersymmetric theory. So the case is not strong in terms of what observations are telling us today. And I don't think that string theory has given us reliable insights or good physical insights or on which one can build on for future work about the nature of singularities or even about black hole evaporation to date. There have been a lot of very bold ideas, uh, but you know it's one of those things these bold ideas are put forward. there is a rush of my papers incredible. I mean there was first you know various people in Stanford were talking about quantum Xerox machines in order to talk about black hole information that modes so which go out to infinity information that goes out to infinity somehow, Xerox, somehow duplicated near the surface, near the horizon, of course, take, taking event horizon as being absolute. And somehow that's why you can get unitary. That sort of out. Then there was a question. No, that was prior to ADS-CFT. That was actually prior. And then there was, of course, ADS-CFT. And ADS-CFT, again, is sort of something that is done in, negative cosmology constant and one doesn't really know much at all about even zero cosmological constant or positive cosmological constant universes. Uh, And so I think, you know, somehow one gets the impression that a lot of effort is being put in areas where one can actually get good mathematical results, solid mathematical results. Whether it has much to do with our actual universe or not is seem to be secondary considerations. Perhaps this is driven by the idea that, well, just because we don't know much about the universe and if natural theory is found, then the universe will obey it. They have said that about the cosmological constant. They have said that about supersymmetry. People are given even scales at which this should be found because they're natural and they're not. And there are examples in physics where very prominent people have talked about some natural ideas. I mean, one of the things that people don't know very much about is the following. You know, just in the end of 1800s, very prominent people, including Lord Kelvin, uh, had really thought that what are atoms? Because people are realizing there are atoms and there are discrete spectral lines. People have just realized that. And their idea was that atoms are really vortices in ether, because they believe in ether. And atoms are vortices in ether. And now, what is it? So they thought, well, hydrogen atom seems to be the simplest atom. So it's a, it's a circle. It's, okay, it's a circle. Then if you have got a next atom that you knew was the helium atom. And the helium atom they thought was a trofoil knot. It's one of those things. It's, it's, an, it's a knot in the knot theory. It's the simplest, beautiful knot. People use that those knots and, and the boats and things like that. So there's a turfoil knot. And then more and more complex atoms would become more and more complicated, knotted sp- structures of ether. So there are ether, some lines in ether which are bent and which are knotted together. And they become the atoms. And these knots are vibrating. And that's why we see the spectrum. And these are very prominent people, we, we were saying that. I mean. I just gave That's you an extremely minute. creative idea. A, extremely I'm wondering how the idea. heck do you come up with that? Absolutely creative idea. And they, they thought, that, and then they convinced a Scottish mathematician Tate to think about knots. In the, in that knot theory was not existing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And knot theory was born out of this. Ah, I didn't know and that. The whole thing started because they thought that that atoms are knots in ether. Interesting. That's how it started. It's a beautiful mathematical idea, beautiful bold idea. They talked about variety. They talked about how yeah. discreteness might come because of this, you know, vib- vibrational modes because the closed thing, thing are, vibrational modes are quantized, and that might explain that atomic structure. I, Michael Atia, who was a very famous mathematician, has a very nice little book on this and the, the origin of knot theory and how it came about. Very very small book. Um, so the. So, these things are happened, you know, then there was another big thing from my community, John Wheeler. Uh, John Wheeler was a very imaginative person and everything, and he thought that elementary particles were chemistry of geometry. It is a little like this idea, I feel like, but now not the atomic level, but at the level of elementary particles. And again, he thought that there were some in general relativity, there were some structures which are purely gravitational. Some complicated, so it's not now one dimensional, but more complicated structures, which you call geons, topologically built and such thing. That How do you spell that? On, geons? geons. g-e-o-n-s geons. G e o n geons. Geon, right. And and he, he had you know he, he, said, he, he talked about elementary particles, chemistry, of geometry. As, I may be misremembering, but I think there is even a. Last chapter of the textbook Gravitation of Misner, von Wheeler might have a chapter on this, uh, might have a section on the chemistry of geometry, which is this idea. Again, it's a very you know, very beautiful idea that that everything, after all, is just geometry. That you know, that, that this all comes from excitations of geometry that topological excitations, and all elementary particles are just that's all.
2: nice yeah.
1: clever idea did not work. Uh, I, I mean, I can go on. I mean, there's, there's a whole, I mean, steady state, state universe, I already mentioned, people were very imaginative, very leading physicists said about about this. So I think that just because some mathematical structures look very natural and nice, I don't, I and mean, there is enough precedent that that doesn't imply that they have anything to do with our actual physical world. And it would be good for us to keep that in mind. I mean, it may have, but this confidence and, as you know, to quote Alan Greenspan, you who know, was a, uh, the head of the Federal Reserve, you know, you called about exuberance, um, something exuberance, right? un- un- unrest- unfettered exuberance. Uh, that, I think, is not necessary. I mean, we, we, can be, we can have bold ideas, we can put forward them, but to take the viewpoint that that is the only solution is not something that is, that is really called for. And so now the question is, what is happening today? If, how do how does string theory and loop quantum gravity or any other approach? Uh, where are we today about it? So there is a very nice article um, on on the web page of the Institute for Advanced Study uh, by somebody who was a journalist in residence there about you know the current status of string theory. And the abstract and the title and the abstract actually say explicitly that string theory has not lived up to its promise of uh, unifying general relativity and quantum, quantum physics, but it has a remarkable second, uh, the, the title is second life upstream theory. It has a remarkable second life as um, um, an as extremely rich toolbox for all branches of physics.
2: Yes, you know, yes.
1: It, you don't it, see that to be the case or no? No, I, I do see that to be the case. I agree with that. So, but it has evolved in that direction, right? And in the sense of, you know, very, very clever things that they can do, even for mathematics, they have sort of made, you know, uh, very beautiful things in algebra, yeah. geometry, um, mirror symmetry. About, I mean, mirror symmetry. Then there, there, there is the whole idea about the uh, superconductivity in you know, condensed matter theory. In other words, strongly correlated systems being, they did not know how to find Green's functions for them in condensed matter physics. But then they use this idea about some kind of a duality. And therefore, they could calculate it in the weak field, in the weak uh, coupling constant limit in, in gravity. And then they could calculate those green functions. So these are extremely rich toolbox. And I think you know it's something great to have that toolbox up here. But toolbox is very different from theory of everything, as it is today. And I think that you know that. Uh, they're admitting i mean leading leading string theories were quoted in this article and they're, they're admitting that you know yes I mean it's not really that but it's, it, is, it has a secondary rebirth and therefore it's going to remain and i have, I have no no qualms about it I, mean, I think I agree it is a very rich toolbox uh, but I think toolbox is not a uh, is not a fundamental theory you know, of physics it does not the yeah, which, which you can probe nature in many, many ways. But now, what hand,
0: would the string theorists say to you? They're like, okay, you say this about us, but uh, hey, all
1: the loop people. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it depends on which string theory. Okay, people, let's pick David Gross. Oh, David, David Gross has open, openly said somewhere, right, that it is bullshit. So I think that is difficult.
0: Okay, so that's what he would say. Okay, so let's pick someone who has a bit more of a specific criticism.
1: But I mean, somebody like Gary Horowitz, I mean, he, he, he has told me several times, right? Gary, Gary is one who has worked, because he also began in general relativity, so we can speak the similar language. Uh, until, when was it? Until 2008 and eight and nine. every year I, I, I used to write notes on what progress and main things in string theory. And I used to. Keep a you know notebook and everything. So you know, I, I used to talk with Gary and find out you know various things so on. And so forth. one of my former postdocs, Don Marolf, is a senior figure in string theory and also in Santa Barbara. So you know, we talk and so on. Uh, Don had done some early work in gravity, so he knows that subject as well. And when we talk, we have no disagreement. You know, when we talk, we you know we's we, they're much more to me at least much more reasonable, in the sense of there's no irrational exuberance that was a framework that that was a frame. the phrase that mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there is much more you know so yeah this is work but you know we believe that this is pointing direction in this particular way and we're excited about this and i said yeah I and mean, that's that's good i mean you know it's, it's an interesting idea i could tell them what they're doing they say yeah I and mean, this these, these guys can resolve singularities and that's a good thing so that's string theories like that who i I have no problem that you know about when I mean, we, we have nobody else. It's a regular scientific discussion. It's not kind of political polemics. I mean, so. But there, there are enough of them. I mean, I, so that's good that there are enough of them. with whom We can have this discussion. We are, we are far from having the final. So if loop gravity people complain, uh, claim that we're very close, I, I don't, I wouldn't agree with them either. On the other hand, I do think that some basic ideas of quantum gravity, such as quantum nature of geometry, are going to stay. That, that's, that's what I thought what what And yeah.
0: Here's a quick statement from Ed Witten, and this comes from the book Conversations on Quantum Gravity. The interviewer says, Due to the lack of experimental data, there exists a plethora of different approaches to quantizing gravity. Which of these approaches, in your opinion, is closer to a true description of nature and why? Then Ed Witten said this, I think your premise is misleading. String theory is the only idea about quantum gravity with any substance. One sign is that where critics have had an interesting idea, so non-commutative geometry, black hole entropy, twister theory, they have been, they've tended to be absorbed as a part of string theory. Another sign is that, well, okay, we'll end it right there. Okay, so what are your comments on
1: that? Um, Yeah, I don't know if I want to say names i was just debating about that um i mean i think everybody is entitled to their opinion and i, I just have kind of two remarks you know
0: sure
1: there is a remark that i liked very much by by, by richard Feynman, and there is a, and the remark says that no, you should have a reality check and so he says it doesn't matter how beautiful your idea is It doesn't matter what your name is. If your theory is not realized in nature, it is wrong. And I kind of feel that one should keep that in mind. uh, That's my first remark. That that very nice comment of Richard Feynman's. And the second is that there was this conference, which was 25th anniversary of um, KITP. And that Guy you know, invited some people that happened to be invited me as a representative of Luke on Gravity, I suppose. Um, and there there's a prominent um sync theorist, or or kind of a tea break or coffee break. We're chatting, and he said, he repeated to me what you just read. Ah. This was a while ago, at which by far the number one. Th- a computer company or the company in the world financial institution in the world was Microsoft so he said well you know string theory is like Microsoft and what Microsoft does has done successfully is that anytime there is a competition or something they have successfully incorporated in that in that. so it becomes part of Microsoft and he said he was, he was nice very nice but he said the same thing is true. Uh, with string theory, that we have incorporated a matrix model, we have incorporated formal field theory, and we can incorporated non commutative geometry. On the other hand, he says, loop quantum gravity is the one thing that we're not incorporated. And loop quantum gravity is like apples. And at that time, I didn't say anything.
0: It's like apples?
1: Uh, like apple. Apple. Oh, like apple computer. Oh, OK, yeah, yeah. As opposed to Microsoft. Yes, yes, yes. And so I think uh, <laughs> to me, this conversation was very illuminating yeah. you know, about the, the you know success being Microsoft and that was a model of success at that time of Microsoft incorporating everything together and Apple didn't do that and where we are today, where we are. So I think people can <laughs> take uh, um, take their judgment about. The value of such,
0: yeah, you know, I was reading this book from Lee Smolin. I don't recall which one. One of the he has written many books, maybe it was Roads to Quantum Gravity. He said that there was a principle of duality, which is extremely vaguely named because there are many principles of duality in physics and mathematics. So I have no idea, I couldn't find a reference to this. I emailed him and I said, What are you referring to? And then he wasn't, he didn't get back to me but he said in the book that there's this principle of duality that a statement in loop quantum gravity becomes a statement in string theory and vice versa or that he conjectures that there's one because there seems to be some for a certain class of questions i didn't find any more information other than that and either way lee seems to think that both loop and string are somehow approximations of some other real theory rather than it seems like you are on the more you're on the approach that well Firstly, loop is not claiming to be a TOE, to be a grand unified theory. It's a quantum theory of geometry, which is "quote unquote" quantum theory of gravity. Okay, so firstly, there's that, and so it sounds a bit more like you you have a tempered view of loop quantum gravity, and Lee has a more expansive view that incorporates both. Where do you agree and disagree? And do you have any references for me to look up this principle of duality? Because I it was, I'm still. I'm still looking to read something concrete about it. Well,
1: I, I mean, I don't have good recollection of dates uh, about when Lee might have said that, uh, but I mean, there are instances, right? I mean, for example, when we're talking about you know, this work on black hole entropy that I've done with John Baez and Kirill Krasnow, uh, in that work, again, somehow this idea about punctured spheres was playing a big role and again the the gauge theories and uh, and and then if i look at the, the string theory idea that their brain and then there were there are also punctures on the brain that were made by uh, by strings uh, and then and so at one stage i mean we we thought that, that there was actually some relation it is also true that you know if you take Lee and Carlo and I wrote a paper which is called Gravitons on Loops, in which we, these are linearized Gravitons, so in Gaspi space. We, we formulated the theory in terms of kind of thickened loops. We introduced a notion of a form factor of the loop and such thing. And the point was that if we just start with completely in the beginning, then you find that there is a graviton, there is an antisymmetric tensor, there is a dilaton. And that's what people found in bosonic strings. And so does that, it looked like in the, in the early days that they may be saying similar things in different words. And it still might be that some of the things are similar. But I think my view is that the way that the things have developed since then, both, both in the quantum gravity and string theory, uh, they, have become, they have become much more diverse than, than before. There are people in loop quantum gravities, for example, Laura Friedel and people associated with him in perimeter. They do talk about um, kind of possible holography in, in uh, loop quantum gravity and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't think that string theory people take it very seriously. So I, I don't know where it is going to go, to go where it's going to go, and so. So what I'm saying is that in the in the initial stage, this duality that Lee was talking about might have been about just a couple of examples I gave there. There is some idea that that same kind of concepts appear in in both approaches. Uh, But I think that over time, instead of more and more such connections, there have been less and less such connections.
0: Professor. I'm sure you're aware, and Carlo Rovelli's brought this up, The physicists of the past were extremely philosophical. And then now there's this excoriation of philosophy in Academy, where it's seen as that's ill-defined, that's superstitious in some manner, and it's going to lead you off the deep end, even though, as you outlined, well, many of the physicists aren't attached particularly to reality with their musings mathematically. Do you think that This is true. Physicists have lost their way. Is it a negative or a positive in terms of abandoning philosophy? The physicists should be more philosophical. Um,
1: I think there has been a branching of ways, but it's not something that is most recent. So, if I go back in time, right? I mean, mean, a lot of time. I mean, philosophy was often natural philosophy, right? I mean, if you look at Socrates and Plato and on the Indian philosophy side, or something like Brahma Gupta who was an astronomer. And they, they were interested in the natural world, and they're also interested in philosophy. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, this. and in fact, a lot of philosophy was philosophy of natural philosophy, which is then sometime, I think, around the time of Galileo and Kepler and Newton, uh, we had a branching a little bit, namely science. I mean, in some sense, this natural philosophy was too successful in that it bred science particularly physics and astronomy initially right um, and so somehow science i mean for this long time has actually uh, taken over uh, that side of philosophy i mean I, there is a very beautiful book by uh, the father and son team which is called the philosopher and the monk. Uh, and the philosopher, the, the, the French, uh, the philosopher is uh, François Ravel. That is his pen name. It's not a... Uh, not the a philosopher. philosopher and the monk. The philosopher and the monk. And François Ravel, or the father, was a philosopher. He was a real figure in uh, in, in France, I a mean, very influential figure in France. Um, he, he was very strongly, in, first of all, Anti religious in the sense of Catholic, against the Catholic Church. And then he was also anti communist, which sort of made him, left him in no man's land. Mm, Yeah, okay. Uh, And his son, Matthew Ricard, who actually started as a neuroscientist, and he got his PhD with um, one of the Nobel laureates in in Paris. I forget now the name. Uh, There are a couple of them, so I'll get mixed up. And then had a postdoc opportunity as a postdoc to go to. Stanford. He had the offer and he was was ready to go. But in the meanwhile, he had also met some Buddhist monks and had gone to India and so on and so. And to to his father's horror, he actually relinquished science and went into, became a Buddhist monk. And Mm. he is the Dalai Lama's chief. French translator, you you find him every many places. Sometimes he's called the happiest man, man, or etc. etc. That's not important. The important thing is that Maurice Ravel has sort of said, hey, "It's this nice account of you know the, how philosophy has developed and not developed and so on so forth." That sometime around that, you know, around the Galileo Newton, uh, somehow philosophy lost this natural philosophy to science and. It also had wisdom aspect, you know. You at Plato. There is really wisdom aspect, and he somehow felt that that wisdom aspect somehow was stolen by more religious traditions. Um, and so, he's—I mean, himself is a philosopher, but he sort of felt that it was somehow the field has gotten diluted because of, you know, in some ways, other branches grew much more. And I—I I mean, I kind of. I am quoting him because I, I feel that there is some large grain of truth in this. So, if you look at, for example, uh, the beginning of twentieth century, right? I mean, there is a very really important lecture by Max Planck, who says philosophers of today sit in physics departments, and he says that their names are Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr. So there are there are this going in that direction, right? Somehow the so So I think this this really has happened. And I know that really in the 1930s, there were philosophers in Oxford, I mean it's not a little place or something, who were arguing that on philosophical grounds, spatial relativity could possibly not be right. And so there has been, and so I'm just saying these things because these things have somehow led to. A deep mistrust in a lot of physics communities about uh, you know utility and use usefulness of philosophy and philosophy of science and so on. However, I find personally that there is a gener- new generation or newer generation, not so new because there are ten-year professors now and so on. And so, on, but of of uh, philosophers of science who actually understand the the physics and mathematics that is needed. And that is always a problem, right? And you need so much mathematical background to understand what physical concepts are and then to be able to evaluate them. Otherwise, you are always years and years behind. Um, but there is a, there are few, they're not, you can probably, maybe 20 or so that I happen to know, uh, less than 20, uh, who, who actually are able to do this? And I think that those people can contribute greatly. Uh, I mean, I think they should be taken more seriously by the physics community than they are. So I, I, I kind of feel that physics has, has become very specific and very technical and so on, and so forth. So it is true that that philo- physicists just dismiss philosophy altogether. I. I think that is too harsh and too uncalled for a stand. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I think it's also true that a lot of philosophy people don't really know science. I mean, it just becomes difficult just because of this specialization and so on. And so forth. Um, but I think that they, that with this young generation, there is a hope and useful things can, can be useful.
0: Can you give me an example, perhaps a concrete example or a specific one where someone of our generation was able to merge philosophy and physics and contribute something that perhaps just soul physics couldn't do? When I say soul physics, I mean S-O-L-E, without the soul <laughs> of the S O U L. Yeah, that,
1: that that people from... That I happen to know are from the Pittsburgh School of Philosophy of Science, who, for example, have worked on things like um, the time reversal invariance, and they and they formulated the way that time reversal is is actually analyzed in physics communities and so on. And so forth. And one of them actually, yeah, I don't want to go into too many details because I various names of principles and so on, because then I've want to explain too much of that. But they formulated the ways that they, they sort of codified thoughts, if you like, by saying that, well, this is a way of looking at time reversal meanings. This is another way of looking at time reversal events, et cetera, etc. etc. And they Example pointed out that maybe there are more general ways of looking at time reversal invariance, and there is, I think, in part because uh, people in, in Pittsburgh were because the gravity group is strong there. Carlo was there for a while, long time ago, and so on. So the gravity group is strong there, and so, on. so they are familiar with um, some of the topics that the forefront topics in physics. So they, they were aware in quantum gravity and so you know they were raising questions such as what would happen in quantum gravity because many of the things that one uses to talk about time reversal invariance are so deeply rooted in Poincare group and, uh, and, and so the question is well I mean gravity and everything and particularly quantum gravity what would happen to it and these arguments will not go through and uh, unitary anti-unitary operators and S matrices and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that that was quite quite insightful. So that is an example in which um, uh, they they were able to formulate um, the they were able to kind of classify the effects that the 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 arguments that physicists had made into categories, and then from those categories say that well. If you wanted to generalize physics further and include quantum gravity, then one would have to rethink about time reversal invariance. I thought that was quite uh, uh, quite insightful, mm-hmm. and I actually, it led me to think about time reversal quite a bit. And realizing that, in fact, you don't need much of the machinery that is usually used to talk about time reversal in quantum mechanics and um, so i you know that that, that that there are things like that they're not i don't want to you many many i mean i don't want to say that there are you know dozens of such examples but there no, are examples in...
0: sorry is time reversal distinct from time travel
1: yeah so time reversal, that's the so i mean they they clarified you know that there's a you know, the question is about time reversal in basic laws of physics. I mean, because people also say that, well, something like entropy increasing means that, you know, you don't have time reversal. I mean, people say that, well, the glass fell down and it has broke, and then it's not, it's not spontaneous. But, but the point is that that's not true, right? Because if I just took the final state and reversed all the, in classical mechanics, and reversed all the velocity, they should actually come, come, come back. Uh, I mean, the point is that those initial conditions form such as, tiny fraction of the whole phase space that is very unlikely. Uh, and so that made a very cleanly distinct distinction. They made the clean distinction between that's not what they were talking about. They're talking about time reversal in the fundamental laws of physics. And and that's what is true with respect to that time reversal is actually violated in the K on DK. So there's fundamental and then you know that, that they're bringing in CPT and usually one says that time reversal is violated. One re, what one shows is that CP is violated. And then one says that I got a CPD theorem, and therefore time reverse is violated. But then their argument was that, well, but CPD theorems completely depend on special relativistic local quantum field theories. And if you don't have special relativistic quantum field theory, then you can't make such arguments. So it was, uh, it was quite... Uh, so that's an example in which I think younger people making... Understanding, first of all, what the physics literature is saying and understanding enough about unitarity and community operators, what we need, what we don't need, and such things, and then, then making nice statement. I think his, his name is Brian Roberts, and I think he's, they have already written a book. He was writing a book on this thing. Um, I just know because, yeah.
0: Well, the links to the philosopher and the monk, as well as Brian Roberts, his work, or at least his Google Scholar page will be in the description. Professor, thank you so much. It's been quite a ride, more than four hours. Okay, let's do this again. At some point, we'll communicate over email and we'll see also how this one goes online and see what the reception is like.
1: Sounds very good. Okay. Take care now.
0: Take care, Professor.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and
2: from the sponsors that allow me to do this full time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.